This episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely positively need to make sure every surface is clean, bust out the cleaner with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by NicoBrew.com. NicoBrew.com is your one-stop hop shop where Nico and his kilt take care of all your hop needs with nitrogen flush mylar and only $5 to ship anywhere in the U.S. and with great international rates. If you're a pro brewer or homebrew shop owner, get a commercial account at pro.nicobrew.com to take full advantage of Nico and his guild. And by BrewGuru, a free smartphone app made by our friends at the American Homebrewers Association. BrewGuru helps beer lovers save money on beer and beer brewing supplies, and it serves up exclusive content from Zymergy Magazine and homebrewersassociation.org. BrewGuru is free for Android, iPhone, and iPad. Check it out. Why Yeast Laboratories has provided fresh, premium liquid yeast cultures worldwide since 1986. Choose from our product collection of ale, lager, German wheat, Belgian ale, wine, malolactic, or wild and sour strains for your next fermentation creation. We're here to help you ferment premium products like the professional. Why Yeast. And by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you like to the podcast and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association. Part of the proceeds from those will go to help support the podcast. And thanks for your support. Hey everybody, welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, where we talk to 25 of the world's best brewers, including us, uh, and get their tips, tips, and tricks and share them with you. Uh, now, between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and testing it out. All right, and on today's episode, episode 25, remember, we're back to Q&A because you guys asked us so many wonderful questions that we just had to split into two episodes. That's right. But but it's not just questions. We're also t uh, talking to Joe Formanak, uh, one of our homebrew all-stars, about a little product that he happens to have out there and that he's trying to promote and uh, get into everybody's hands and what sort of impact it might have on your homebrew. And we're going to back that up with an experiment from our Igors who are going to try this product out themselves. But before we get to all that, we have feedback. But Denny, what's new? Well, we want to tell you you can support us uh, by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com, and you can click on the Patreon link. 
uh, make a donation in any amount that you feel like, and that will go to support our charity, which uh, is the Children's Tumor Foundation, which supports research into the causes and treatment of pediatric neurofibromatosis. I've said that enough. I can like actually say that word now. Uh, <laughs> also, you can click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association, and you'll get a subscription to Zymergy Magazine along with it besides supporting a great organization that supports homebrewers. Or you can click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to Brew Your Own Magazine. And uh, when you do either of those, a portion of the proceeds kicks back to the podcast to help us fund some of the experiments and the travel that we do to get some of the cool interviews that we've got. So, go. uh, Drew, how about the feedback? Oh, I guess we've done enough business. So yeah, let's get some feedback going. Uh, so the first one is actually uh, from Facebook. Uh, we heard from uh, Vincent, one of our Igors, who's uh, off doing a hop experiment for us right now. Very awesome. And uh, Vincent said, I liked your segment on SNS starters, the shaken not stirred starters. I never knew what it was called, and I've been doing it for 28 years. I usually repitch each strain, collecting a half gallon of yeast each time, and save the wacky beers for the third or fourth time. This weekend is the third generation Saison going into a pumpkin Saison strain. So there you go. Uh, Vincent finding out, hey, there's an actual name for this thing I've been doing. Yeah, well, you know, and it kind of goes back to what I said when we uh, when we discussed it. Um, it's pretty much the way that most of us started off making starters, and then we got uh, all hung up in all the scientific crap and kind of lost sight of what really worked and was easy. Never accuse a homebrewer of not finding the most efficient and lazy way to do something. That's right. All right. Uh, next, a uh, little piece of feedback comes from uh, one of our questioners uh, last uh, last episode, uh, Diani, uh, who wrote in after hearing our answer and said the following. Uh, you remember uh, Diani was the one who had the uh, massive beer that uh, sort of uh, floundered and seemed to be stuck. It says, uh, thanks a lot for your answers during your last episode. I had measured specific gravity and it had gotten down to 1080. Not now, wait, wait, I got to say down to 1080. Holy crap. Well, well, remember, this is the one that started up at like 1150. Oh, I, I know. Just the, the phrase down to 1080 just sounds yeah. weird, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, life doesn't start until 1060, right? So he's still not That's living. That's right. Uh, not moving further down in five days. After listening to the podcast, I did the forced fermentation test. 250 milliliters uh, with a whole 11 gram pack of USO5. And it's fermenting, although not done yet. So I decided to go for it. And this morning, I started a three-liter stir-plate starter with three packs of USO5, rehydrated. After 24 hours, I will dump the beer and add another four liters. And when done, I will add the whole thing to another two liters of wort for four to five hours and add the whole thing to the fermenter at supposedly full croissant. All I can say wow. is, yeah, <laughs> that is a hell of a lot of yeast, man. Uh, it'd be interesting to see how the uh, dry yeast will do with the exposure to the starter wort. I know that a lot of the dry yeast companies are uh, downplay the need uh, or say that they directly don't need a starter for their product. But I think uh, nothing else uh, doing the rehydration the way that you're doing is going to give those yeast a fighting chance because, yeah, you're throwing them into um, a real tough battle. <laughs> yeah, right. I don't know if I would have bothered with the starter. I probably would have just rehydrated three or four packs and dumped that in. But uh you know, whatever. So, uh, Deanne, please get back to us. Let us know if it worked. There you go. All right. Hey, Denny, you want to tackle this question about the Vessi? Sure. We'll be happy to. So we heard from Matt Ellis, who says, gents, I have a question regarding the Vessi. When listening, I heard the Whirlpool folks say that they ferment under pressure. 
I have always heard that fermenting under pressure can stress the yeast and produce off flavors. During the podcast, did I miss something? I dig a system that could harness the CO2 to be reutilized, but I would think that there would be a pressure limit and the excess would have to be vented off. And yeah, Matt, I, I agree with you about that last part. Yeah, There's a limit to how much pressure you want to ferment under, but uh, fermenting under pressure is not an unheard of thing. There are a lot of commercial breweries that do it, and supposedly it speeds up the whole fermentation process. So, Well, yeah, in theory, if you're under pressure you're reducing ester and phenol uh, production. And if mm-hmm. the yeast strains can handle it, then, you know, yeah, you could you could do that and produce a cleaner, read, blander beer in a shorter period of time. But it, like we've found with the Saison strains, there are some strains that absolutely refuse to uh, work with uh, pressure or CO2 or whatever's being trapped in the, in the work. But there are a couple of strains out there. I think White Labs has one that's a, a high-pressure lager strain. Uh, mm-hmm. and yeah, so you'll see people do that. And I, and I'm drawing a blank on it right now, man, but there was somebody on, I think the HA forum, or maybe it was HBD who had designed a whole home fermentation, CO2 capture and repressurization oh, system. Yeah. Right? I think, I think it was on HBD many years ago, but, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, basically the, the short answer is, yeah, you, it is okay to ferment under pressure, but you need to not, not ferment under too much pressure. And I would just assume that the Vessi has some way to control that. Yeah. If I remember correctly, it, it basically has a, a spooning valve right. uh, attached to it. So you can set the pressure and say, bleed anything over 10 PSI. Yeah, I I think that's right. Uh, Matt goes on to say there's an article in Brew Euro November 2015 in which the author Aaron Hyde provides the following industry data. And this uh, relates back to our experiment about uh, malt staling and uh, crushing the malt and waiting a while to use it. Uh, The chart here says that malted product whole grain base malt, that is, is best used in 18 months to two years. Milled base malt, ideally six months, but you can go up to 18 with a little aroma loss. Whole grain specialty malt, 18 months to three years, depending on type. Milled specialty malt, three to 18 months. Some grains are more susceptible to aroma loss and moisture issues when milled. And I say that, yeah, pretty much that's exactly what we found in our experiment, too. Uh, And even hearing from uh, other people who wrote in afterwards who had uh, more extreme examples than what we did in the experiment, uh, it just is more confirmation that uh, don't freak if you mill your grain and you can't brew right away. So, uh, your turn. All right, well... And by the way, we do have to uh, say that Matt is from Bethesda, Maryland. Uh, it belongs to a club, Brewers and Drinkers, around Silver Spring. I'll let you figure out what the rest of that should mean. <laughs> That's pretty cool. All right. So last uh, piece of feedback comes from Chris Saunders, who uh, is actually offering some follow-up on one of the questions from the previous episode. Uh, starts off by saying, hello, Denny and Drew. Thanks for the awesome podcast. I want to start off by saying that your podcast is one of the few that I feel comfortable suggesting to my lady brewer friends. Awesome. Hey, cool. I want to follow up on that question regarding low O2 keg filling with my technique. First, I should clarify that I am one of the unwashed pinlock users, so my lids don't have PRVs and require that I bleed off pressure via the CO2 post. Well, around here, we don't call those uh, unwashed pinlock users. We call them commies. I don't know why. <laughs> oh. uh, it's a falcon thing. Anyway. Okay. Uh, 
When I need to fill a keg after it's all cleaned, purged, and pressurized uh, to 2 to 3 PSI, uh, I attach my CO2 coupler to some extra gas line and submerge it in a jar or small bucket filled with water. By doing this, I am helping to prevent air from getting in. Once my keg is no longer pressurized, I simply attach a beverage coupler to the end of my racking hose and begin my transfer. For most beers, this works really well, though dry hopped versions sometimes plug up the coupler, which can be a tiny bit frustrating. In those cases, I simply pinch the racking hose, clean out the coupler, and reconnect it after sanitizing, of course. And he's uh, he says, I've attached a terribly drawn picture to help visualize my setup. I do want to confirm to all of our listeners that uh, Chris's drawing is indeed terrible. But what he's <laughs> uh, what he's doing is exactly what I would suggest doing if you have a pen lock keg uh, and you don't have a pressure relief valve. I simply do the pressure relief valve because it's easy. But right. yeah, there's absolutely nothing that would, even with a ball lock that says, oh no, just attach a blow-off hose. I mean, that's effectively what you're doing. They're attaching a blow-off hose, bleeding out your pressure, and then using that for relief, and that works perfectly fine. I do actually like the additional uh, nature of, hey, look, I made an airlock so I don't get any accidental O2 ingress. But I'm I'm telling you, we're going to do this experiment at some point because I really, really feel that if people got better about getting their kegs empty of oxygen, they'd have a much better time kegging. But that's me. Well, you know what? I kegged two batches yesterday, and one I did my usual way, and one I did your low oxygen way. So uh, we'll see what happens with those. Woo! Yeah, Science. right. <laughs> yeah, well, it proved to me that I need to get another CO2 tank because lugging my 20-pounder from the house out to the garage is more work than I want to do. Yeah, you need to have another 20-pounder out in the garage. Yeah, right. Well, uh, we'll see how that works out. <laughs> okay, we are going to take a quick break here and wander on over to the library and talk to you about some info that you can probably use, and we'll be right back. Never wait for fruit to be in season again. With Vintner's Harvest fruit purees and wine bases, you can enjoy consistent quality fruit which was picked at the peak of ripeness. F.H. Steinbart Company, the nation's oldest homebrew store, recommends grapefruit or tart cherry purees for your next sour or wild beer. So make sure to ask for them at your local homebrew supply store where Brewcraft USA products are sold. And remember, not all fruit purees are equal. If it's not in the Vintner's Harvest can, it's not the same. Okay, we are here in the library, relaxing and getting ready to have a beer. Not quite yet, though. And uh, Drew, why don't you tell us what you've discovered? All right. Well, if you guys remember back to the episode that we did at HomebrewCon, uh, one of the people that we interviewed was uh, Terry Ferendorf. And Terry is one of our favorite people. She's been around the brewing industry for ever and a day. Uh, founder of the Pink Boots Society and uh, just all around awesome and now really deals with malt. Uh, and so my library suggestion for you guys this week is if you can go find Terry on Facebook and follow her because what she's been doing recently that I think is really just sort of awesome is dropping the barley crop report into her Facebook feed. 
So bringing back uh, data about how the harvest is looking for this year, and she's talking that she's going to do more of this. So just to give you a taste, this is the report that uh, Terry just uh, dropped today as we're recording this. Uh, This week's barley crop report from Canada. Good weather this week has allowed harvest to continue strongly in Alberta. Estimates are that Alberta barley harvest will be around 90% complete by the end of today. That's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, quality is better than earlier estimates with chit levels under 5%. However, wait, small wait, amounts wait. of moisture was in there. That was chit levels, right? Yes, chit. C-H-I-T. I, I, yeah, I don't need to beep that one. Yep. Uh, however, small amounts of moisture and areas of frost warnings over the past week may cause some additional quality concerns on the barley not yet harvested. The main concern at this point is whether the barley will start to germinate before it gets malted. Last year, a good amount of this barley crop was lost because of this reason, and tests are being completed to see if it will be a concern this year. In the U.S., rain covered the grain-growing areas of Idaho with about two inches in south-central and southeastern Idaho, while the higher elevation areas received between three to five inches. This moisture is good and will set up the growers for a good start next spring. Turns out I think the U.S. is done harvesting. Uh, In Europe, which is always a concern for us because we always get reports back that the European crop is suffering, uh, Scotland is just about complete with their barley harvest, with reports showing some higher nitrogen levels and lower yields. Across the EU, concerns for winter cereal planting are increasing as many areas remain too dry. A nice rain would give the soil good moisture for planting. So, once again, Europe not doing so hot on the barley side. Uh, And then uh, closing out her report is Australia. And she says here, rain continues to fall over East Coast barley regions. Growers would now like some drier weather to improve crop development and also allow them to spray for pests and disease. Frost concerns are present in Western Australia with cold night temperatures being received. The damage caused will need to be assessed over the coming weeks. That's all for this week. Have a great weekend. So I love this. This is awesome. This uh, This is an insight into part of the industry that we rarely ever think about, right? You just go into the homebrew shop and go grab some Maris Otter or go grab this and whatnot without ever thinking about like, you know, what's really happening behind the scenes. And like, for instance, the stuff out of Europe is going to be a little concerning for those of us who like to use, say, uh, Golden Promise because those higher nitrogen levels may be, it may come across in the Golden Promise crop, which will mean that some of our beers will suffer from haze issues or harshness issues. Uh, the fact that the EU is having problems is going to affect Pilsner malt. So this is why it's good to get this information. You should definitely follow Terry and go ahead and uh, get these sorts of reports. Yeah, and and the information is presented uh, concisely, and so it doesn't take much time to just read through it and get the info. Uh, And just a, a little minor crop report here, because I have gotten several emails from people saying that they have heard that the U.S. hop crop is not going to be good this year. That is not at all the indication I got when I was in Yakima a, a month ago. Uh, as far as I can tell, and as far as information I've been able to dig up, U.S. hop crop is generally looking real good this year. So there you go. It kind of reminds me of when I was growing up in Iowa, and they would do the uh, noon corn and hog reports on the radio. Well, there you go. But uh, can uh, can we just go back for a second? Uh, when you started to talk about you know people asking you questions about uh, the crop report, yeah, I wasn't thinking you were about to talk hops, man. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, my crop report is that things are good, too. <laughs> hey, and you know what? While this has nothing to do with what we've been discussing, uh, it did come up last time around when someone asked if we'd uh, maintained our New, Year's e- our New Year's resolutions, and I said that, yes, the chicken coop was built. 
We ate the first six eggs from our chickens last night. Yeah, and what, what's the per egg cost right now on those eggs? Uh, I figure, I figure, like uh, right now for the six eggs, they are running about a hundred and fifty bucks a piece. But uh, as as we get more eggs, I'm sure the cost will go down there to you probably go. probably only something like twenty bucks a piece. Well, and for the, for those who have never had an actual like homegrown egg. Uh, can you uh, compare the difference? Oh, man. It's like uh, picking vegetables right out of your garden and eating them. Uh, the eggs have like a really nice, full, rich flavor and, and beautiful orange yolks. That It was it was a real cool experience, and uh, my wife and I were both just like thrilled to death with them. See, and now I'm, I'm expecting that uh, this time next year we're going to have experiments on the podcast of you finding out how different feeds affect different breeds of chickens and their eggs. <laughs> yeah, well, that would be that would be my wife's job, and I don't think she's really into that. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Oh, okay. Before we get on to the second half of the Q and A, we're going to take a little break here and uh, wander over to the lab where we'll be talking to Joe Formanek about Brutan B, and we're also going to be announcing our new experiment with Brutan B and telling you what that's all about. So we'll be right back I have Joe Formanek on the phone, and we're going to talk to him about some of his great brewing achievements and about this uh, amazing product that he turned me on to called Brutan B. How you doing today, Joe? Just fine. How are you doing today, Danny? Uh, I'm great, and I bet you Drew's great, too, huh? I bet you Drew is, too. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Drew, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about uh, some of what Joe has done in the past, and we'll let him see if we're right. Well, uh, all right, now, uh, let's see. I, I've got a book here in front of me, uh, a homebrew something or other. Uh, all stars, oh, all yeah. stars. Yeah. <laughs> funny, funny thing, and, and and I got a picture of Joe standing in front of a, a lovely long shot uh, uh, banner here. So, Joe, you're uh, what uh, over there in Chicago area, right? That's correct. Yeah, southwest suburbs of Chicago. All right. So, mm-hmm. and and you've been around the homebrewing scene for a good long while, and I know that every time I think I've ever come close to an NHC where where you've been in the same area, you've been winning a lot of awards over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I've been fortunate over the years, no doubt about that. <laughs> yeah, and of course, obviously, then you also have the uh, the uh, Sam Adams long shot. Yeah. Uh, so, what beer did you right. what beer did you win that one with? That one I won with my Imperial Stout. Um, that was uh, that was, that one in the 2012 uh, multi pack. Um, but yeah, my Imperial Stout. That's that's one of those uh, brews that I pretty much every year I'm always doing a little modification on. You know, finding new ingredients to use to improve the flavor profile or you know other aspects of it. And um, yep, so that that was one from that year. Yeah. Well, and I was gonna say I think. Your feature in Homebrew All-Stars has one of my favorite conundrums about it, shall we say? That you're in the old school masters category. Yeah, you know, this is the uh, the the group of people who really respect tradition and and love like the traditional styles. And for those who haven't read read the book, you know, one of the things we asked all the All-Stars to do was put together a lesson and give us some recipes. And so there's Joe in the middle of the all old school masters uh, segment. And his recipe is all use bananas. 
right. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I got to say, man, I was like kind of speechless when, when you came in with those recipes. <laughs> you know, bananas I found over the years, you know, it was one of those great substrates to use for brewing. I mean, they're, they're number one, they're inexpensive. You know, you can buy quite a bit of them in the store. You know, they're readily available. And they ferment out very, very well. And, uh, you know, if you're looking at certain flavor profiles, like certain, certainly in darker beers, you know, like you think about a chocolate-covered banana. Okay, great. You know, and then you put bananas in with your stouts, you know, like a chocolate stout or something. Mm, there you go. It's like a dessert right there, you know? <laughs> you, you know, man, if anybody besides you had said that to me, I would just be screaming bloody murder. <laughs> Yeah, he's he's not kidding. You should hear the amount of crap he gives me over the idea of a fluffernutter beer. Fluffernutter. <laughs> now, see, now, Drew, a fluffernutter beer could benefit from bananas, right? It, you could be, there you it go. could be an Elvis beer. Yeah, it, it no other strictly be a fluffernutter per se, but yeah, it's an Elvis fluffernutter, which suddenly <laughs> sounds true. like a porn shoot position or something. I don't know. <laughs> really. Okay, so let's uh, let's let's move on to Brutan here a little bit. Now that we've uh, qualified that Joe knows what the hell he's talking about, even if it does include bananas. Um, so when I ran into you at uh, CBC in Philadelphia, you were there as a rep from uh, Ajinomoto, uh, and you you were talking about this stuff, and uh, you had samples out and some literature, and I picked it up and brought it home. Rather than me screwing it up, why don't you just describe a little bit about what Brutan is and what it does? Sure enough, yeah. So Brutan is basically what it is. It's an extract um, from tannic acid. It's um, actually, well, it is tannic acid. It's an extract from um, gallnuts, from oak, and it's a natural product that our company makes. Um, we've been making tannic acids for the flavor industry and, you know, for other uses for many years. And tannic acid for brewing is one of those applications that it's been known historically. You know, if you go back to the clerk, they actually talk about using tannic acid for clarifying back, you know, in the turn of the 20th century. Wow. But it, it's been, it's been, you know, forgotten over the years. But what it does, it gives you a very nice impact on your clarity. Um, it, it tends to coagulate out those proteins that are more influencing haze. So um, there's an amino acid proline that, um, that this particular product, this uh, tannic acid, likes to glom onto. Um, so proteins that have a lot of proline in it are ones that will, again, coagulate and kind of crash out of your... Uh, crash out of the boil. Um, on top of that, it also gives you a really nice benefit for chelation of iron and other divalent ions. The reason you want to do that is that iron has a real impact on oxidation. So if there's, if there's too much iron in your system, it'll cause this reaction to occur, and you get free radicals, and, you know, it's, it's actually called a Fenton reactions. But what ends up happening is that with this oxidation that occurs, it, it gives you cardboard flavors, it takes some of the freshness away from the beer, and it's, uh, you know, it, it gives, again, a it, it impacts the overall quality of the beer. So tannic acid can help with the clarifying as well as long-term stability of the product. 
that's like magic. <laughs> you yeah, in a way, you know, it's uh, it, it's an interesting, you know, it's a really interesting product for use. Now, at a homebrew level, what's the right way to use it? Okay, um, for homebrewers, I always like to use it, and, and I'll tell you, I've been using it now for a couple of years in my in all my beers. Um, I like to use it in both the mash as well as in the boil. Uh, by using it in the mash and the boil, you're both getting rid of those proteins, those safe proteins, and also getting rid of any of the iron or anything that might be in your water. So it'll give you a much more stable beer. So in the mash, you use this at a very low level. I mean, typically if you're brewing a five-gallon, you know, batch of beer, um, you use about one-quarter teaspoon of brew can B per five gallons of strike water. So, you know, however much you use, that's, you know, as far as water goes, that's how much uh, brew can be you'd be using. Mm -hmm. In the boil, um, I suggest using about a half teaspoon. And you use that about, you know, 15 minutes or so before the end of the boil, very similar to what you do with Irish moss. Uh, and then, just like with Irish moss, too, you make a make a slurry, you know, from the wort. You know, so you just kind of get it in solution, get it ready to go. And then you add it into your boil, and what you'll see immediately, you'll see a, a white cloud that forms. And I don't know if, Danny, when you had uh, tried it, did you see something uh, similar to that? Uh, with your, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that I did, uh, you know, and mm -hmm. I... You know, I'm I'm remarkably uh, unaware of what's going on around me when I'm brewing. <laughs> uh, but you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna definitely pay attention for that the, the next time I use it. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So when when that cloud forms, then all of a sudden you start seeing larger precipitate, you know, forming. Right. You know, so you see you know larger pieces that then they float around a bit, but then they crash out. So you get the, your work ends up being much clearer, and afterwards, when you're sparging, you get a lot quicker recirculation. You know, so you're going to get clear work very quickly. In really, no matter whatever you know, kind of louder tongue you use. Right, and several of the people that I've recommended the use of this stuff to uh, on the forums have been industrious enough to order it from Australia, which seemed to be about <laughs> the only place they could find it. But they, yeah, they yeah. have been posting pictures of their post-boil wort with, like, massive amounts of break in it and just the nicest, clearest wort you've ever seen. Yep. You know, that's, that's what it does. And, and you've also said that uh, you should use it in your sparge water at the same rate as in the mash water. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Any, really, any water that you use uh, across the board... Yeah, just use it again, you know, about a quarter teaspoon per five gallons, and uh, and that's a very effective rate. Right. And, Drew, I sent you some. What, what have you been your observations with it? Uh, you know, uh, so far, I, I've, I haven't done enough to really go, oh, yes, I, I agree. But, yeah, I used it in one of my Saison batches because, of course, it did. Yeah. And the one thing I noticed was, yeah, it, the Pilsner malt itself really kind of seemed to throw a lot of clump. Yeah, so I mean it, that the Pilsner malt I I use tends to tends to throw a lot of break anyway, but this seemed like it was a firmer break to start with, and so it was kind of kind of interesting to see. It. And I haven't actually seen the end results yet to see if the saisons uh, that come out the other side are are bright and clear, as opposed to how they're just usually a little bit hazy. Uh, I, I right. I've been really tempted to want to pair it up with that uh, Laughlin Irish ale malt oh, that yeah. we also have our hands on. Because that stuff already drops pretty clear, 
Right. And so combine this together might be like, hey, look, super Irish clear malt. And I've um, so far, I've only had the chance. I mean, I've used it on a lot of batches. I've only done one batch where I did back to back batches and, you know, used it in one and not the other. It was uh, a German pills, 100% uh, best pills malt. And, you know, I had been intending to do like a blind triangle tasting, but the <clears throat> difference between these two beers was so remarkable that I just felt like there was there was no reason to do it. And, you know, that's one of the reasons that uh, we are now doing this experiment with our Igors, where uh, we're going to have 15 different brewers taking a recipe that they have brewed before and know well and making one batch with Brutan B and one batch without and having them do the blind triangle tasting and see what their results are. Uh, and... You know, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing that what I thought I saw wasn't just confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. Yeah. No, that's fantastic. Yeah. No, that, that was a great opportunity. Yeah. Well, so, and so Joe, we also put out a, uh, to our listeners uh, uh, and asked for some questions if they had any, and so okay, I was hoping that we could go through them real quick. Uh, we had uh, no problem. Yeah, yeah. And so we had one from uh, Ken Leonard who said. I don't have any specific questions regarding Brutan, but I would love for you to ask Joe to expand on what he knows about it and what exactly it does. I'm also interested in knowing if Brutan impacts different brewers based on their processes, equipment, water composition, etc. Will people who were careful about O2 pickup in the first place conclude that Brutan isn't doing anything, while those who splash and stir their way through the brew day see an improvement? <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, you know, the way it works is by, you know, as if you're talking about, by chelating out any iron or other ions like that that might impact oxidation. It, the theory is, and, you know, we don't have a complete confirmation. I'll just say this right now. But from what we've seen, the, um, the oxygen that's there tends to be somewhat neutralized, you know, so that even if you do have, you know, a bit of, ox you know, free oxygen in your system, it won't give that same impact, you know, that same oxidation, that same scaling effect uh, with the brew pan when it's present versus not. Um, the water is very important, obviously, um, you know, for your system. And, you know, and the biggest win for your system, if you have water that is rather iron-rich, is that this will help you with your beers. It'll, it'll really give you that longer stability and really better flavor profile, too. So, I, I don't know if you've been following it, but one of the big uh, trends, whoop-de-doos in the homebrewing world these days are uh, is, is low-oxygen brewing. There are uh, a bunch right. of guys from the German Brewing Forum who have come up with this uh, rather complicated procedure for eliminating oxygen from their brewing through uh, <laughs> use of pre-boiling mash water and immense doses of sodium metabisulfite and stuff like that. Uh, yeah. Um, sure. now, obviously I'm, I'm lazy and I'm not going to do that crap. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but let's say that, let's say that you are a brewer who takes maybe not quite such extreme practices to limit oxygen in their brewing. But if you're already mm -hmm. doing things that limit oxygen from brewing, is it possible that Brutan will show less difference? Well, you know, what it will do, it maybe if you're being very careful and, you know, you're reducing the amount of oxidation that's there, you know, that's potential, then, then yeah, the Brutan won't give you as much effect on that side, but 
it'll still give you that clarification. It'll give you the benefits of you know better you know better recirculation, um, and. I know there have been some there have been some discussions too on the flavor impact. You know where it tends to take some of the edge off of more you know higher alpha acid hops. You know if you're using if you're using some that are just a little sharp, you know a little too much going on, this tends to kind of mellow it a little bit. You know so you still get all the impact of the hop. It's just not as not as over the top sharp, I guess, is what you could say. But no, I mean, as far as you know, as far as those other other effects, yeah, I mean, you'll still get all that effect with the brew tan if you use you know low oxygen water. It's just that you know the stability you already you're being already cautious about that. So you know you will have a better less uh, less issues with your oxidation right off the bat. Right, and so the the way that I kind of take it is that. If if you are picking up oxygen, brutan then mm-hmm. kind of like interrupts the reaction that would cause your beer to oxidize. Is that correct? Okay, correct. great, great. Well, I yeah. just wanted to make sure that my uh, my semi scientific <laughs> simplification was uh, was somewhat accurate. So, yeah, basically, you know, if the if, if the oxygen's present, then it just doesn't have the same effect as it would otherwise. You know, I mean, it, it can't go through that pathway to produce free radicals and then um, oxidize your product. Right. right. Okay. Well, so there you go. So, well, go ahead. We have another question from a listener, Riley Smith. It actually came in with a couple of questions. So, uh, first one he says is, uh, "Why the discrepancy in the time to use it?" I've seen on the forum where Joe recommends to add it before finings. I've seen a couple of his recipes where he adds it during the boil portion of Brutan at sixteen minutes, and then the Irish Moss at fifteen. But yeah. the spec sheet says the following. Brutan B is added maximum five minutes before the end of the boiling process or during the transfer to the whirlpool. Typical dosage rates are blah, 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 blah. So, got a, got a response yeah. to that? Yeah. So, interestingly enough, I know we're talking about Brutan B, you know, during uh, during our discussion here. Mm-hmm. But there are different forms of Brutan. And these forms are more just dependent upon um, you know, kind of purity levels. But it's... It's not really, it's basically the same product, just a little different in that respect. But we have Brutan C and Brutan F, and these are used at different points. And these are sold in um, more for the professional brewers, so the larger scale, you know, even like the the big boys, the mega brewers are using these kinds of products. Um, The Brutan C is typically used in the bright tank to, um, you know, kind of crash out these proteins at that point. And the Brutan F is many times used in the final filtration. So it's actually used to coat your filter system to then, you know, really scrub out those, ah. any any bit of haze protein that might be present. Right. Oh, there you go. Um, but, yeah, but when it comes down to Brutan B, uh, you know, at least the studies that we've been seeing now, I mean, and, and really we've been working with it more and more, and we do find that it's important to add the Brutan B before your other kettle finding agents, um, just for the fact that there can be an interaction between the two, which would kind of, well, not so much neutralize, but it would reduce the effect of each. So it's important for you to have the brutan in before your Irish moss for it to have that effect, and then the Irish moss can come in a little bit later and work its magic as well, and then, you know, if you're using Irish moss, of course, and then you get a, then you get a nice effect from both. 
And that well, see, was, and you you actually perfectly predicted uh, Riley's follow-up questions because the second ah. question was, does Brutan interact with findings if used at the improper time? I did a basic IPA go. and it came out very cloudy. I sort of split the difference in Joe's recommendation and the manufacturer's recommendation. I did half my boil edition at 16 minutes and the other half at 3 minutes and Irish Moss at 15. Could this have impacted clarity? Sounds like yes, absolutely. And then, <laughs> and then his uh, his final question was, would any of the other Brutan products have a benefit for us homebrewers, for example, Brutan C? So it sounds like Brutan F is really strictly for anybody who's doing filtering. And Brutan C, yeah. uh, that that would be a sort of pre-packaging type thing, but that would probably have lesser impact for homebrewers than, say, the, the Brutan B. Pretty much so, yeah. I mean, it's um, Brutan B, which is what we consider to be more the workhorse for both the homebrewers as well as the smaller, you know, craft brewers, too. Cool. Well, right. and so let's let's talk about that that part then, because obviously, I mean, at the moment, we're you're working on trying to get Brutan B available to homebrewers in a more convenient That's way right. than ordering it from Australia. Uh, exactly. But, <laughs> I, I assume then that you're seeing uh, pickup and adoption of Brutan B. You already talked about the mega brewers, but you're also uh, pushing it out there to the craft brewers and and getting a response. Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah, very much so. Um, yeah, when we've been uh, sampling it out to, you know, some of the you know, craft brewers, even some regional brewers, um, they definitely see the benefits, and uh, they've been they've been getting the product and using it in their systems. Um, even the, the smaller brewers, I've, uh, I've had the opportunity to brew at a number of, uh, you know, kind of smaller craft breweries around the Chicago area, up to, you know, like anything from three-barrel up to 12-barrel, you know, systems mm-hmm. for brewing, and... Yeah, and without, you know, without any, you know, without any issue, I mean, we've been seeing some great benefits, and everyone wants to buy, <laughs> when it comes down to it. <laughs> so, well, I, I've been very go. happy you know, with this. It's been great. <laughs> Well, well yeah. so now let's ask. So it's great that it's out there for the craft brewers, and obviously you very generously got us samples for our Igors to use, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, but sure. is there a, a, like an idea, like? Uh, timeline for getting it in front of uh, available to homebrewers in a way that isn't through Australia and roughly so that since you know people are sort of pecunious uh, in the homebrewing world if there's a sort of how much this would add to a batch cost because it seems relatively cheap right yeah well you know um, when it when you're using it in the systems, you know, like when you use only like a, a half a teaspoon or a quarter teaspoon, I mean, the, the cost impact is, you know, on, on a basis, you know, it's quite low. Um, you know, when you when you sell the product in bulk, obviously, you know, it's much cheaper, you know, than when right. you, when you pack it off on smaller uh, containers. Um, timeline, I'd love to have it out into the uh, out, out into the homebrew shops uh, by. You know, early next year, mid next year. Um, really trying to work with some, you know, some suppliers on that side, you know, to try to get it out there. Um, but yeah, the, really, you know, we'll just have to see what the, uh, you know, really what the price point will be of the way that it's being sold out in the for the homebrew shops. But I do not see it being any more expensive than Irish Moss. You know, oh, uh, when great. it comes down to it, it's, it's not. An expensive oh, and that's product. and that's uh, that's cheapest chips. <laughs> so, uh, so obviously, I mean, this sounds like this is a really great product, and so far, 
the experiences we've been having have been very positive, and hopefully we'll see some interesting results out of the Igors as well. Uh, mm-hmm. For homebrewers who are interested, is there any place that they should contact? Should they contact you to know like when the product's becoming available, or uh, any way to say, hey, no, we really want this? You know, um, yeah, certainly. I mean, if they, I, I could put myself out there if they would like to contact me about it. Um, I could talk to them about it and give them any updates. And I would certainly love to hear any feedback from them as well, you know, either positive or negative, you know, because this is something we are studying. You know, we're continuing the studies, obviously, to see how well it works in, you know, our systems. You know, interestingly enough, this product, I know you say how it's sold in Australia, and it's also available in Europe. But for the most part, the brewers there are, you know, the beers that they make are more traditional. The Pilsners, you know, that's where it's used a lot. You know, a lot of those, the lighter style beers. So the idea was to bring it over here to the United States and see how it works in our broad range of different beer styles. You know, when you're talking, you know, you have everything from your light lagers all the way through your imperial stouts. You know, we're, we're just understanding more and more about how well they work and in what recommendations it would be for the different types of beers, you know? So yeah, definitely would love to hear feedback. Great. Well, if it's okay with you, we'll put your uh, email address on our website so people can contact you about it. And also, uh, we would love to have you back in a couple months when we get the uh, experiments of the result in to go over those with us. Are you game for that? That would be fantastic. I'd really appreciate it. Cool. Excellent. We'll do that. Well, and to prepare for that, uh, people out there in the world, if you're listening to this and you have questions that you want to find out the answers to, uh, when we do come back and revisit, make sure you get us your questions and we'll be able to ask Joe while we have him here. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, Well, hey, Joe, thank you so much for your time today, man. We have really appreciated you being here with us and uh, supplying our Igors with the Brutan B samples. And I am just really, really looking forward to the results to see if uh, they have as a good result with it as I think I've had. Fantastic. Now, thank you both, uh, Benny and Drew, for this. I really appreciate the opportunity to let, uh, let, the, let the world know a bit more about Brutan. That's great, man. Uh, thanks again, and I'll talk to you soon. Sounds great. Thank you. you, you take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. Okay, that was a great conversation with Joe Formanek about Brutan B and what it does. And uh, you heard me mention that we have an experiment going with our Igors using Brutan B. Drew, fill us in. Yeah, so this one's going to be a little different. Uh, because Brutan B is relatively new, and they, they have some broad claims about its efficacy and you know, what exactly will apply to. And you just heard some of the stuff that uh, in the interview with Joe that I hadn't heard before, which is uh, it may have an impact on hops too, you know, in terms of like reducing some of the overly harsh characters. So what we're doing, Joe kindly gave us 15 samples of Brutan B. And we are distributing those 15 samples to 15 of our Igors who have already signed up. And we are allowing them to brew any recipe that they know and love. You know, something that they are very, very familiar with. The one requirement is that that we are requiring that they do two batches. So first batch, they do as they normally do. No Brutan B, no nothing, just their usual process. Second batch, they make with the Brutan B according to the recommended amounts. Uh, and you can follow the whole addition to both the sparge water, the mash water, and the slurry addition at 16 minutes. And then do a triangle test to compare the two. So now here's the question. Why uh, Why are we doing this one with a different sort of recipe thing? 
Well, because we want to see what happens when we expose this to as many different recipe styles as is out there. You heard Joe say in the interview that one of the things that they're really curious about, part of the reason why they brought it in here into the U.S., is they want to see what that broad style uh, range does to the impact of the product. You know, does it measure out the same way for all of these different things? Do you see the same impact in an IPA versus a Pilsner versus an Imperial Stout? So really, you can kind of think this is going to be uh, 15 different independent trials with uh, some different substrates involved. And so the stats and the math and all that are going to be a little different and weird, but whatever. People already accuse us of having bad stats to start with. <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah, we uh, we decided that we wanted to just ask people to brew a recipe that they brew frequently and love so that they can really get an idea of uh, any kind of difference that the brew tan B makes. Uh, and, you know, like I said uh, when we were talking to Joe, I think it makes a huge difference, but I am willing to admit it could be confirmation bias. So uh, I am, I'm really dying to see what, uh, what our Igors come up with. Yeah, well, and this one's going to require uh, some good note-taking and photo-taking on the part of our Igors, because since so many of the claims are about laudering efficiency, clarity of wort at various stages. Uh, what we're asking the Igors to do is, when they're doing these brews, is to record down the uh, the laudering efficiency, the gravity that they're seeing at their runoff at various points in time, uh, to take pictures of the collected wort to show whether or not there's an increased clarity in the, in the wort runoff, to take pictures of the boiled wort to show, again, differences in the, in the wort pre-brew tan B, post-brew tan B. Uh, and then also to do things with uh, photos about the clarity of the work with like strong backlights so that we can really see how that works. Uh, and, you know, and and we're also asking people if uh, if they wouldn't mind to uh, to bottle a few bottles of the beer and set them aside for uh, a few months and kind of get an idea of uh, if it affects uh, how the beer ages and if it improves anything that way. Yeah, in, in theory, if it does help reduce oxidation, and one of the points of the whole uh, low-dissolved oxygen-type brewing methodology is that it's supposed to help improve those micro-oxidative characters, reduce them, uh, which leads to improved malt character and improved hop character, if you, if you believe in this. And so... In theory, if Brutan B is doing some of that as well, we should, after a couple a couple months or even, hell, a month with like an IPA, be able to see a difference. Yeah, so that's that's the plan, guys, and that's the Brutan B experiment, and we will be back in a couple months with the results. And we're going to take a quick break right here and be back with the second part of our Q&A show. <laughs> Boys and girls, it's time. Time for your questions. You gave us a lot of them. We tried to come up with a lot of good answers. Who the hell knows if we did it right? I'm sure you'll let us know. I would say we're like 50-50. Yeah, I think we did pretty good. This episode, we're going to cover the last three categories of questions that we had. First one is going to be uh, all your packaging questions, so all your kegging, uh, everything else. Next segment is going to be all about brewing philosophy and a little bit of ingredient stuff. And then finally... That last mysterious 
hallmark, an area of study that we all seem to get into obsessed with varying degrees, the water. So without further ado, let's go ahead and uh, dig into our questions, shall we? Okay, for our next question, we have Les James on the phone from Joliet, Illinois. How you doing today, Les? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Danny? Uh, I'm I'm great, man. I'd, I'd be better if I was drinking and not working, but you know, that's that's life, and uh, at least my my work involves drinking. That's a good thing. <laughs> so, Drew, are you there? Yes, I am. All right. Well, we get down to some questioning business here. Okay. All right. So. Les wrote in, unless I'm going to read your question out to the audience, and uh, then we can talk about things as we go. So uh, Les writes in, uh, first off, I love the podcast. I stumbled upon it a couple months ago and have been binge listening. You poor man. Uh, I started brewing about four years ago, but for medical reasons, I had to give it up after six months. Like Drew, I lost a crap ton of weight, around 155 pounds, which beats my record. So good on you, man. Yeah. Uh, which coincidentally cured all of my ailments. Well, I got the itch to start brewing again and started up in May of this year. Previously, I'd only been able to keg one batch before I stopped brewing, so I don't have a whole lot of experience with it. Now that I'm brewing again, I have a question about aging in kegs. I brew in a bag, typically five and a half gallon batches, and many of my friends really enjoy the fruits of my labor. This leads to me having more brew- having to brew more often than I used to. Such a t- tough problem to have, I know. Anyway, I only have two lines for my regulator in my keg writer, with the ability to fit a third keg in the fridge. Since I double brew on brew days, I usually have four kegs going at a time. My current practice has been to unhook the CO2 from the two existing kegs and break one of them into the basement, which remains around 65 degrees at all times. Then purge the O2 from the new kegs and leave them on gas for a couple days. I will then bring one of the new kegs downstairs and reinstall the older keg that was in the basement. I have found that when I retap that older keg, the beer is darker and taste changes in a bad way, which doesn't happen to the keg I leave in the refrigerator. I am careful not to transfer trube and yeast from the fermenter when kegging, so I'm not sure why this is happening. I don't. Typ- I typically don't wind up finishing that keg due to the change in beer, which is disappointing and goes against my frugalness as a home brewer. Uh, do you guys have any idea why this is happening and what I can do to prevent it? Would I be better leaving the keg out in the garage next to the kegerator so I don't shake it up as much by moving it? I'm pretty certain it has something to do with yeast, but I don't know how to stop it from happening. Would I just be better off purging the oxygen from the new kegs than bringing them down to the basement full until the other ones kick, or will the same thing happen to those kegs? I can't tell if this has happened to the newer kegs I bought, I brought down to the basement, as the two times I've done this, they've been darker beers anyway. All right. <sighs> hey, Drew, I have a question. Yep. When are we going to start screening these emails? Ha! <laughs> 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 all right so Les, it sounds like the problem is uh, if i've got the gist of everything that you've asked here correct you have more keg capacity than you have fridge capacity so you can't cold store all your kegs and when you move one of the kegs down to the uh, down to your basement which you say is at 65 when you bring it back it's aged in a terrible and disappointing way that makes you unhappy yeah, and it does so it pretty fair, quickly too pretty quick <laughs> and like how quickly uh well, if, I, if I'm pressurizing that keg and trying to force carb it, typically what's that? Uh, about a week and a half, two weeks. So mm-hmm. in that short period of time, when I unhook it and put the old keg back in, the beer, in most of the cases it's been uh, wheat, make a lighter beer, like an American wit style, mm-hmm. and they've gotten significantly darker, like almost to the point of being brown, like when you stick your yeast starter or your 
after you do a starter and you pour some off into mason jar and you put it in your fridge. Sometimes you get that that darker brown layer on top of the yeast. That's kind of almost what the color of the beer turns to, darker like that. Do you detect any change in the flavor of the beer or the aroma? Yes. It, um, like I said, the flavor, the flavor degrades a little bit. Uh, sometimes you do get that butterscotchy flavor. I've noticed that I picked that up in there, mm-hmm. which I don't get in the beer before I move it. Right. And it's almost like a yeasty flavor, but it doesn't seem to clear if I let it sit in the fridge. It just stays with that color and that flavor the rest of the time. My first thought is you're getting oxidation uh, somehow, because uh, that will cause darkening, and if there's oxygen there, it can uh, turn diacetyl precursors into diacetyl, uh, which would be the the buttery butterscotch flavor you're tasting. Do you do you notice like an increase, like say like in a caramel flavor in the beers or anything like that? Off the top of my head, I'm going to say no. Um, wrong answer. Wrong but, answer. <laughs> okay, then yeah, yeah, it happens. Man, Drew, what do you think? Well, my my first thought whenever somebody says, "Hey, my beer is darkening," is oxidation. Yeah, right. So that would be that would be my first suspicion, particularly if you're not seeing this when the beers are staying cold. Uh, okay. Because, uh, as we know, oxidative reactions will speed up the warmer the beer gets. So even at 65 degrees, as in comparison to the time that's spinning in the fridge at, like, say, 40, 45, or 35, depending upon where you have your fridge set, uh, you're going to see logarithmic increases in oxidative reactions just on that temperature span. Uh, the other possibility, uh, you say that, you, that you're careful about trube and yeast going into the kegs, which is good. But before you go into the kegs, are you doing like any sort of cold crashing or gelatin finding or anything to really sort of force clarity out of the beer? Yes, I do. Um, I've just recently, like the last three batches or so, been finding with gelatin, but I have always cold crashed them. Okay. I, I do have a fermentation chamber, so I am able to cold crash. Awesome. So, because my other thought would be if it's not an oxidative reaction, which I still think is the most likely culprit. I wonder if the beer, when it's warmed up, if you're not experiencing sort of a re-fermentation in the keg, and so getting yeast growth. Uh, because, I mean, let's face it, even as even as good of a job as we can do with cold crashing and gelatin, there'll still be yeast in the kegs. So part of me would wonder if you may be getting some yeast growth and then that's murking up the beer. But, but in, I mean that would but if that was the case that would settle out. So and that also that also assumes that there are still fermentables in there for the yeast to be working on. Uh, are the beers yeah. are the beers finishing at a gravity where you expect them to less? Yeah, usually within a point. Okay, They're pretty good with yeah. that. Yeah, right. So so theoretically, there shouldn't be a lot of stuff left for the yeast to to feed on, but you never know, huh? All right. Well, let's let's talk about when you go into the kegs. Right. Yeah, uh, you talk about purging O2 uh, from the new kegs. How exactly oh, are you going about doing the purge? Uh, so I actually do not purge prior to transferring in. Once I get it out to the garage, I hook up the CO2 and I crank it up to like 15 or whatever and pop it for a good 
half a minute or a minute, let it fill and then hit the relief and then let it fill and then hit the relief. And I keep going through that process to purge uh, the O2 out of the head. Uh, now All that's right. this, that this, this could be the issue and it's definitely something that you can try and is real easy. Uh, Drew, why don't you describe your technique? Yeah. So I would say if we want to prove that it, it whether or not it's oxidation or at least eliminate oxidation as a, as a cause, try my, my kit my keg purging process because it will drive all the oxygen out of the keg or most of the oxygen. And what I do is I actually will fill a keg with sanitizer. In my case, I use Sandy clean. You could use Idafor or star sand, whatever you have okay. fill it all the way to the brim put the lid in, and you actually want liquid coming spilling out of the keg. When you put the lid in, it's that full and then push the sanitizer out of the keg with co2 and push it into another keg to sanitize that or push it into a bucket and hold on to it if you use uh if you use distilled water with uh sandy clean or star sand you can hold on and reuse it for a while uh but drive all the liquid out of the keg you're pretty much left with nothing but co2 in the keg then rack your beer into it and then try this uh, this technique that you've been doing, you know, or this process that you've been doing, where you take the keg and move it into the basement, and see if that causes the same sort of change. If you see a different set of reactions, if you don't see that same level of darkening, that would say to me that you have an oxidation issue. So let me back you up a step, Drew. You said to you, you force the sanitizer out under pressure. Mm -hmm. That's not a big deal. It can do that, but then. Don't you have to relieve the pressure then to get the lid off to rack into the keg? Will there still be residual CO2 in the bottom of that keg? Yeah, the whole keg will be filled with CO2. Uh, and so what I do is if I'm racking out, say, like a carboy, something that's not pressurable, or you sh shouldn't pressure it. I pressure them anyway, which is me being a bad person. Don't try that at home, kids. Yeah, uh, don't do that. Uh, but I will, uh, I will sometimes crack the lid and just pull the lid out and drop the hose in and put tinfoil over the top of it. If I'm going from something that I can pressure transfer out of, like say a conical or a keg, because I've fermented uh, 10 gallon corny kegs, uh, then I will just go straight into the out tube and just crack the PRV. And that will allow the pressure to bleed out through the top. And regardless, even if you're regardless, even if you have to go in through the lid, uh, like crack the lid and put the foil on top, you're still improving your ox your level of oxygen in the keg by many many folds, right? And okay. You know what, Les? This is something that I'm going to be trying too because uh, I pretty much keg the way you do. And Drew uh, had been talking to me about his method, and I have a couple batches ready to keg. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to split the batches and keg them the way I do it and the way Drew described. So if if you use Drew's method, we'd really like you to get back to us and let us know if you detect any difference in your beers. I will definitely do that. I'm going to be, uh, actually, this afternoon, I'm going to be racking over two separate IPAs. So. Cool. Oh, that's, a, that's a good test, too, because, uh, you know, oxidation will really kill the hop character in an IPA. So if this works, you should end up with definitely a better quality hop character in your beer, too. I will check that out. I'm going to try it Drew's way today. 
and then I won't know until I brew again, so a month and a half or so. <laughs> <Yeah>. Well, <laughs> just get get back in touch with us whenever you brew, and let us know if you detected any difference by kegging that way, and I will have done mine by then, so we can compare notes. Sounds like a plan. I will definitely yeah. try it out. Yeah, and see, and this is an easy technique, and I'm I'm telling you, if it's oxidation like we suspect, this will fix it. Yeah, right, and you know, and you're gonna have to mix up star sand anyway, so why the heck not do it? You know, right, or whatever, right. whatever sanitizer you use. So, okay, man, anything else we can do for you while we got you here? That's probably about it, gentlemen. I appreciate it, and you guys are rock stars in my world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you say that until you actually meet us, man. Then your opinion will change. Hopefully next year in Minneapolis. I'm, I'm planning on finding you guys. So. Oh, great, man. We will be there. We will be recording a podcast live once again. So please, if you make it, come by and make sure you find us somewhere. We'll be around. Sounds like a plan. Great. Great talking to you, Les. Thank you for your time today, man. You too, guys. Have a great one. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. I'm on the hot seat now. This question comes from Stout Fan over on the Bruise Brothers forum. Uh, his first name is actually Frank, and I can't pronounce his second name, so I'm not going to screw it up. It's a longie, so get ready. He says, okay, Denny, I got two. Number one, can Drew create a pepper beer that you can appreciate? Maybe, you know, uh, we'll see. Uh, I haven't had one that he's done yet, so I can't really tell you. Okay, now, number two. But, well, hold on. I will say, the best pepper beer I've ever had, and I've ever been witness to in terms of homebrewing, isn't even mine. It came from Harold Grabonson down in San Diego, mm -hmm. good old Hal. Yeah. And Hal did a jalapeno wheat that I judged one year in a competition. That damn thing was sublime. Like, good pepper flavor, good heat, but not so much heat that it made you go, why am I drinking this? Yeah. And, awesome. and the ones that I've liked uh, tend to be the ones with less heat and more pepper flavor. Uh, I've had like a roasted poblano uh, pepper beer that was actually darn good. It was a little off-putting at first because of the vegetal quality, but hey. So at any rate, Frank, uh, there you go. Yes, uh, somebody can create a pepper beer I like, and maybe Drew will do one someday. We'll see. Okay, question number two, the serious one. On the Brewing Network's session, uh, sorry, I forget which, JP had a guest that did a foam protein collapse test. One pale ale from a tap into two-liter bottles with carbonator caps. One was left untouched. The other was depressurized, suffered head collapse, and then repressurized. That process was repeated several times, and both served on the show. The one-time pressurized bottle was clear in the bottle, served clear with good head stand. The other had sediment in the bottle, served very cloudy, had poor head stand and some off taste. All were attributed to fractured proteins. So after that setup, here comes the question. I keg beer green within one or two Play-Doh of final gravity, allowing the yeast to scavenge any remaining oxygen, even though I CO2 purge my kegs. Sometimes this goes past a Play-Doh or two, and I have to bleed off a 60 PSI keg. Please tell me I'm not alone here. Uh, you may be, buddy. Um, I'm, be I'm betting I suffer from the same protein breakdown. First half of the second question. What do you think about this? 
Uh, should we just take these halves separately? Sure. Okay. What do I think about it? God, I don't know, man. Um, you know, with the bottles, I would have guessed that maybe they were suffering from oxidation by the one bottle being, uh, you know, opened and uh, repressurized. That's, you know, a, 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 what they call a wag, a wild-ass guess. Um, as to what's going on with you, yeah, I could see that maybe it is a protein breakdown going on with you and maybe even in the, the bottled beers. Um, I, I just don't know. Uh, you got a guess? Well, I mean, first, there is a a whole running gambit about uh, not doing repressurization and uh, not uh, sort of doing the shake form of carbonation that I, that I at least do because the theory is that uh, the heading proteins, uh, largely albumin and whatnot, uh, that are present in the beer really can only foam up once. They can only create a stable bubble structure the one time. Right. And that by doing some sort of shake uh, carbonation or this sort of repressurization slash uh, uh, type of thing that they did in the bottles uh, will lead to uh, poorer foam. Now, having said that, I'd be a little curious to see, to do this test myself because um, I'm trying to think exactly why you you would get haze because that would take a good amount of broken down protein, I think. Well, yeah. And, um, and not only haze, but he said there was sediment in the bottles also. Well, yeah. And so I don't know. Part of that's probably, probably, you know, whether or not there was sediment in the bottles to begin with, like a little bit of yeast and the reshaking disturbed it. Now for his keg question though, uh, I would, I wouldn't be so worried about the 60 PSI bleed off because I mean, really, that's a much gentler thing yeah. I, I would gather than, you know, sort of this, you know, shake and foam and uh, shake again with more pressure. I would actually say, for the most part, any sort of sediment thing that you're going to see, and a, particularly after doing a bleed off, is probably going to be from residual yeast that's in the keg. Because when you do the keg conditioning like this, I mean, I know for me, one of the biggest problems when I've done keg conditioning in the past is just the sediment and dealing with that. I mean, hell, I deal with sediment even when I don't do that, uh, if I haven't cold crashed and given it enough time. Right. So I would think the if he's seen any sort of uh, negative impacts in terms of cloudiness and whatnot, I would I would actually gather... Sorry, I would actually just go ahead and say it's probably sediment from the keg conditioning. I mean, uh, it's, it's possible. Uh, to go back to the first part about the bottles... When I'm when I'm kegging a beer, uh, I, I generally don't want to wait for the whole keg to carbonate and chill down and stuff. So I'll fill a two-liter bottle, put a carbonator cap on it, uh, shake the crap out of it, and stick it in the fridge. That bottle comes out, gets served from, gets repressurized and shaken again, goes back in. This happens multiple times until that two-liter bottle is gone. And I got to say, I have never seen anything like what Frank is describing. Uh, as far as I can tell, the beer remains as it retains the level of clarity that it had when I started, and no sediment shows up in the bottle. 
So I I really don't even know what to say since I have done the same thing and haven't really seen that happen. Uh, all I can say is that, uh, Frank, maybe I live cleaner than you do, so I get the good things. Well, I don't know. I would say my only natural response to this is, well, it sounds like we have an experiment today. Yeah, that's actually, that's a good idea. Thanks, Frank. We'll do an experiment. Okay. Yeah, and this one would be easy to do. Yeah, it would be. It would be. Now, for the second half of the question... For the lazy SOBs like me out there who have not yet bought a second gas cylinder and have not run a regulated CO2 line into your beer fridge, I'm right there with you, Frank. I'm the lazy SOB. Me too. Uh, I do not run CO2 lines into my beer fridge. Uh, anyway, and are presently dispensing off of keg pressure, repressurizing when the flow of beer gets too low for our impatience. Do we suffer the similar degeneration in our beer quality, even though it is a one or two pour per day outflow rate? Uh, you know, I don't think so, because I think it is the shaking that uh, is the cause of the problem, just like uh, how using a stir plate can cause... Uh, uh, shear stress on your yeast cells that can kind of do something similar. So I think it's the, the actual agitation itself that's causing the, the problem. Uh, this is another wag, of course. So my guess and my experience from doing exactly the same thing you do is that no, it doesn't have the same kind of, uh, of effect. Uh, what, what do you say? Yeah, I, I don't think it does either. I, I think. I think the actual problem with this methodology, and I'll be upfront, I do it too, uh, because uh, ain't nobody got time to set up a giant grid in your kegerator. At least right. I don't. Um, <clears throat> I think the the bigger problem is actually just the change in quality because of the inaccuracy of your carbonation over time, and if you're not careful about it, and you're pulling too much uh, beer out of the keg and not repressurizing, then you always have the possible issue that with our corny kegs, which generally seem to prefer to have about 10 PSI on them to seal properly, that you could actually drop low enough to leak CO2 out of the keg. Yeah. Uh, but that takes a pretty vigorous session. Um, so to me, I think the bigger problem, the any quality suffering that you're going to get from is just from the varying level of carbonation and the fact that you're losing that sort of precise target that you try and get yourself to. Yeah, you know, and you're no longer at like 2.5 or 3. Suddenly now your beer's at 2, so you're going to perceive it differently. And then if you do recarbonate and shake, then you could possibly introduce issues. You know, and I have to admit to being one of those people who's uh, pretty lackadaisical about carbonation. If I'm not too deep in my celebratory uh, habits, shall we say? Yes, yes. I will, I'm diligent about repressurizing the kegs after a session because I want to make sure that I don't, don't suffer from that. But having said that, I'm not always that diligent because sometimes I get a little too deep into the celebratory practices. And for me, it just comes down to more laziness, you know, uh, sometimes I do more often. I don't. And uh, Frank's question. Number three is I'm an EE and not a math major. Are you sure you want me to ask you any more questions? Sure, buddy, bring them on. Yeah. We may not have an answer, but that doesn't mean you can't ask. And who knows, we may just somehow stumble onto something accurate. Okay, Mr. Beecham, right. your turn. 
So our next question comes from Mike Hall, who's asking a little bit about uh, chill haze. And he says, I've noticed that most of the beers I've brewed taste better to me at carbing temperature compared to after being chilled in the fridge. I also notice how clear the beer is when drinking warm. I tried one that was placed in the fridge for about a week. It had a chill haze and just didn't taste great. It tasted dull compared to a warm one. Can chill haze be perceived by taste? Was it just that the beer was too cold? My understanding is chill haze is only a cosmetic issue caused by proteins. So, let's see. Can ch uh, Let's tackle the first part. Uh, yeah, chill haze is a cosmetic issue caused by proteins. Uh, basically, you have proteins colliding together. They come together, and they become actually large enough, visible enough structures that they uh, mess with light transmission through the beer. Tasting dull, and can chill haze be perceived by taste? I've never done anything to try and perceive whether or not chill haze is actually tasteable. I'm trying to think how I would actually test that without having the temperature question involved. So you would almost have to have a setup where you have one beer that you chill and allow it to settle for a good long period of time, right? Because one thing about chill haze is chill haze will settle over mm -hmm. time. If, if you keep sure. the beer sufficiently right. cold, it will settle. So what you could do to test this is chill two bottles in the same environment. One bottle agitate periodically. You know, like every day, pick it up, take it out of the fridge, give it a little uh, quick stir. Right. right. Nothing too violent because you don't want to deal with any sort of oxidation issues. The other one, just leave rock steady. And then have somebody pop the caps on them and decant the, the one that has been allowed to settle so that you're not stirring the sediment back up and decant very carefully. And then do a triangle test that way. Um, but because chill haze is a cosmetic issue, it's a visual thing, to really be accurate about it, you're going to want to go into opaque cups. Right. Yeah, so that you're not so you're not seeing the chill haze in one of them and going, aha, that's the different one. Because here you're trying to figure out, does it actually affect the taste and not whether or not it affects the visual qualities? You already know it affects the visual qualities. So... That would be uh, that would be my first thought uh, in terms of how you test it. Uh, in terms of why your beers taste better to you warmer than colder, well, I mean, think about it. Most, uh, most home fridges are fairly cold because we're trying to keep our food fresh. So, yeah, most craft beer is better a little warmer. Uh, most home brews are uh, going to be better a little warmer, uh, particularly if you're dealing with something that's got a nice hop character to it. Uh, I kind of like those up in the upper 40s, lower 50s. So, yeah, uh, I generally find that you're going to taste more when it's warmer, uh, and that may be part of what you're seeing. But I think you can test the chill haze part. You just got to be diligent about uh, getting that thing to settle out. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, I just, uh, I, I don't know. It would be a hard thing to test for sure because, uh, you know, by the time you get the, the temperature equalized, the chill haze may be gone from the beer that you've warmed up. But like Drew said, if you just let it settle, well, of course, if you let it settle, then that's not going to be any good because then it's not there and it's not affecting the taste possibly. <laughs> I don't know. It's a, it's a tough question, Mike. Uh, I can tell you that I can't recall noticing that correlation, but probably now every time I drink a beer with chill haze, uh, I'm going to be thinking that maybe it doesn't taste quite right. So thanks a bunch, buddy. Hi. Yeah, great. Now you've made him paranoid. Yeah, that's right. That's just what the world that's needs. That's right. right. A paranoid <laughs> hippie. Okay, next question is going to come from Satchel Douglas of Alameda, California. 
He says, love the podcast. Uh, love back at you, buddy. Here's my question. I'm new to kegging and just got two pin lock kegs and a ball lock keg. What kind of care and maintenance is required for keeping them functioning well? How should I store the ones that are not in use? Okay, if they're, if they're used kegs that you just got, I would break them down completely. Take off the posts, take out the poppets, uh, run it. I would, personally, I would use some Craftmeister uh, alkaline brewery cleaner. Uh, and fill the keg with it. I drop the posts and poppets uh, down into the keg to let them soak there too. Uh, and that also uh, prevents you from getting them mixed up when you put them back together. Uh, not all kegs use the same size uh, posts, even though uh, they're like all ball lock or all pin lock. Uh, there's going to be some difference in the diameter and the threads of those. So you want to make sure that... Uh, the posts go back on the keg that they came off of. Um, set the lid on top there, kind of soak it to the O-ring. Uh, take a look at it. If it's uh, nice and flexible, not cracked or anything, I would probably put some keg lube on it uh, just a little bit to just kind of keep it flexible. If it does look cracked or dry, replace that uh, O-ring. Same thing with the O-rings on the posts. Take a good look at them. Um, when I am done washing a keg, I make sure it's thoroughly dry, put it all back together, put the lid on, pressurize it with about 10 pounds of CO2, 10 PSI. Uh, I uh, put a little uh, post-it note on top with the date when the keg was washed and pressurized. That is good because if you go to use the keg and you pull the pressure release valve to open it and there's no pressure in there, you know that you've got a leaky keg and you want to set that one aside for further work at some other time. So uh, what, what's your procedure? Mostly the same. Uh, I'm very uh, pro just replacing your gaskets whenever, uh, but I will generally break down my kegs at least once a year. Uh, I have about 30, somewhere in that area. <laughs> I have a few kegs, Yeah, uh, which is the reason why whenever you see pictures in my brewery, they're always kegs ready to be washed. Uh, but I will break them down. I use a, a, a circulating keg cleaner. I do use the alkaline brewery wash on them as well. I will replace all the uh, the seals whenever I uh, whenever I feel like it, which is generally about once a year. Uh, and then, same as you, I make sure to track where the poppets are and where the lids are. Uh, in fact, I actually wash the poppets and soak them in uh, separate glasses so that I know, hey, look, that those poppets go with this keg. Mm -hmm. uh, but then one thing I do that's different than you, and this will play into our next question as well, is... I wash them out, rinse them, then I fill them up with sanitizer, run the sanitizer out via gas, and then store the kegs pressurized and have them ready to go. And I have keg a special pile of kegs that are pressurized and in a corner and ready. And in my brew house, if a keg is pressurized, it's sanitized. Interesting. So Yeah, and and I don't tend to sanitize in advance because I have questions about if it stays sanitized, even though logically I know that it would. Man, that keg is sealed. There's CO2 in there. There is no reason for it to not still be sanitized. But I just 
prefer the warm, fuzzy feeling I get by sanitizing right before I use it. Denny, I don't think it's warm, fuzzy feeling. I think it's called, uh, looking back at our last question, you're paranoid. Buddy. Yeah, well. You, you, you need to lay off the crop. <laughs> Yeah, possibly so. Okay, so uh, why don't you uh, talk about purging a keg? All right. So next question is from Pete Boyle, uh, who emailed us and asked, how does one purge a keg? Do you purge both before and after filling? What is good enough in a homebrew sense that we are not packaging commercial beer that might be mistreated, stored, warmed for weeks? I only have two five-pound tanks and doing 11 purges at 30 PSI as the chart slash link suggests seems overkill and gives a... A link, we'll make sure to include it in the podcast notes. My process is seven purges at 30 PSI after filling, which translates to numbers. Um, And he asks, is this too high? All right. I have never, never liked the, you know, oh, just fill the tank, you know, purge the, the headspace in the keg by running CO2 into it and venting it. Running more CO2 into it and venting it running more CO2 and venting into it. Uh, and the reason I don't like it is because it's imprecise, impossible to know that you've actually purged everything, and yes, also wasteful of CO2 in my mind. Because here's the problem. We like to say, uh, or homebrewers like to say, oh, well, you know, CO2 is you know heavier than oxygen, so we'll displace all the oxygen in the keg. And you just have to, some people will go into the, dip, uh, the out dip tube so that, you know, oh, the CO2 is flooding in from the bottom and allowing the, the oxygen to get pushed up out the top. Um, horse hockey. <laughs> CO2 and oxygen mix. They're miscable gases. That's uh, H- Henry's so, Law, isn't it? Yeah. And so here's the thing, is if you're mixing the gases, you're never really going to know. And so what people are trying to do with these multiple purges is reduce the overall oxygen percentage, right? How, how much ppm of oxygen do I have in here? And the more of these purges I do the the less I presume to have. I don't like it. I don't trust it. I think it's a waste of CO2. And meh, rant. Here's what I do. Just like we alluded to in the last question, when I get done washing the keg, I fill my keg with uh, sanitizer. A lot of times I'm using SaniClean. Sometimes I use Iodophore, depending upon what my needs are. Uh, but I fill that keg, and I mean filled to the top so that when I put the lid in sanitizer is actually coming out of the keg, close it up, let it sit, let it sanitize. And then I use a jumper line to run out the out port over to the out port of another keg that's ready to go. And use CO2 to push all that sanitizer out through the, the hose into the next keg. All right. And that next keg has the, the pressure relief valve popped or the lid off. So that all the all the gases can be pushed out. Once all the liquid is out of the the first keg, pull the lines. Keep every don't do anything with the pressure. Just pull the gas line. Pull the jumper line. That keg is now sealed. It is sanitized, and it is absolutely one hundred percent full of CO two. For certain values, one hundred percent. They're close to one hundred percent. And the reason for that is aqueous solutions like our sanitizer solution are incompressible. They don't have uh, as the oxygen entrained with them. We're pushing the CO2 out, or when we're pushing the liquid out via CO2, we're pretty well guaranteed that almost everything that's going to be in that keg is going to be CO2. Now, the reason why I have faith in this process 
is because I've done some very, very stupid things over the years because I am very, very stupid. Uh, perfect example was I had a beer I brewed for the 2011 uh, National Homebrewers Conference in San Diego uh, that I called the Nomas in the Details. And the idea was something inspired by Brasseria Schuf, uh, sort of a 6%, 5.5% uh, Belgian Blonde Ale with the Schuf strains, right? And absolutely wonderful beer. Didn't drink all of it down at uh, San Diego. And I kind of forgot about it in the corner of uh, one of my chest freezers. And forgot about it until the next San Diego conference, which was 2015. And I went, oh, well, that's unfortunate. But I tapped the keg. And this is now a you know multiple-year-old keg of a relatively session-strength beer in one of my purged kegs. Had been kept cold. And guess what? It still tasted fresh. So I attribute that to the fact that I removed as much oxygen from that keg as I possibly could when I, uh, when I went and packaged or before I packaged. After that, I never purge it. I never do anything else with it. I just keep the pressure on it. So there you go. There's the Drew Beecham method of purging. I like it a lot better than all this stuff of, you know, oh, vent gas and pull the pressure relief valve because I don't trust it. I don't like it. And no, sir. And that's exactly why that's what I do. <laughs> not, not just because you don't like it, but uh, number one, uh, I don't, I don't generally have a keg of beer around for a year. And um, number two, like I said, I don't, I don't fill mine with sanitizer and push them out for storage. So uh, I could do that. Obviously, I sanitize them before I use them, so I could do that and then fill them. Okay, so my question is. How do you fill these kegs? Do you like fill them through the the outpost, or do you like open them up and uh, run a run a piece of tubing into them to fill them? How, how do you do that? Depends upon what I'm coming out of. If I'm coming out of one of my carboys, mm -hmm. uh, and I still actually do have some carboys and I have some buckets. If I'm coming out of one of those and they're not really pressure vessels, and I I always rack with CO two, mm -hmm. uh, even at uh, non pressure vessels, which is very dumb, but it's how I right. do it. Um. I will go in through the lid and I will actually pop the lid and I will cover it with foil and whatnot and drop the line all the way down to the bottom. There's a little bit of mixing of gases, I know. But again, as long as I'm not like going and flinging the keg around or running a fan at it, relatively minimal uh, mixing. Yeah, well, if I'm coming up or, 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 or so you think, I mean, you know, do you really know that there's really minimal mixing? Well, there's not a lot of convection across the top of those kegs yeah. when, if it's all covered okay. up. Okay, okay. Was, it was just a question. Yeah. No, I mean, do, do, I know, do I know according to Hoyle with instrumentation and everything else? No. But uh, still, for the most part, it seems, it seems to work out fairly well. If I'm coming from one of my kegs or another vessel that can be pressurized, those I will go in through the outpost and leave the, leave the keg sealed. You know, right, and just using uh using a spunding valve or or pressure relief valve to uh pull off pull off the pressure off the keg so that the transfer. Can yeah, if I'm doing a keg to keg transfer, of course I do the same. So this seems like a fertile ground for yet another experiment, huh? We could uh, you could fill one keg with uh, beer and have the keg be pre-purged and then the other one not pre-purged but do the put in the co2 and pull the uh, the prv a whole bunch of times and compare that that would yep. be an easy one huh 
Okay. Yeah, and I think, well, what it would take take is, uh, I think, best way to do it would be with something hoppy, right? Because those expose that sort of flavor change. Uh, Well, it just... Yeah, we could totally do it. It just so happens I have a batch of a very hoppy pale ale that is darn close to being ready to be kegged. So uh, I may (laughs) have to give this a try. Yeah. Now, by the way, just since I know homebrewers out there, we love to be cheap. One, I think by purging this way, you save CO2. But now also with the pre-purging or sorry, the pre-sanitizing stuff, the fact that I sanitize before I, you know, store the keg and then I don't re-sanitize when I use the keg. I actually am using less sanitizer, I feel, doing what I do because I will actually stack up multiple kegs for processing. So I run sanitizer straight through, say, like four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten kegs. And I'm not doing it discreetly with different batches, which is why I feel I can get away with doing whole batch or whole keg sanitizing and purging and not spend an arm and a leg on sanitizer. Yeah, yeah. And that, that does have that advantage, so... Well, I think it's time for a little bit of a musical interlude here, and then uh, we'll come back and get into some really juicy questions about homebrewing philosophy. So uh, stick around, dig the music, and we'll be right back. And now we've come to the time of the show where it's time to get a little philosophical. Yeah. It's time to talk about things just more than technical. All the things that make us stay up warm and fuzzy at night, all about the homebrew. So, Denny, why don't you go ahead and uh, take our first philosophy question, shall you? All right. Uh, first question comes from Leonard Ashcroft, a uh, Facebook buddy. Leonard starts off with a little philosophical statement that actually fits in really nicely He says, a homebrewer at rest tends to stay at rest unless acted on by a net force. And I don't mean like a net funicello. I mean a net force. Okay, so thank you. You're not allowed to make jokes anymore. (laughs) Okay. Uh, So Leonard's question is this. I haven't brewed in far too long. My last brew day was in February. I'm wondering if taking breaks like this has been something that either of you guys has experienced, and if so, how did you break yourself out of the slump? I've got all sorts of excuses. I tell myself, it's too hot. I'm too busy. Winona Ryder just won't stop calling me. I love my beer, and I miss being able to pull a pint of home drink. Cheers. Well, Leonard, yeah, I have, I have gone through slumps like that. Um, it would, a lot of it did come down to actually being too busy to brew, and then a lot of it came from after being too busy to brew, to not being able to work up the energy and excitement to brew. And you know what, man? There's nothing that says that you have to be out there brewing. Uh, if you don't feel like it, don't do it. It's a hobby. It's supposed to be fun. 
if you're not having fun, you're doing it wrong. So I would say just kick back and wait until the urge strikes you again, because at least my experience is that it will come back around and you will get back into home brewing and you'll tell Winona that she'll just have to call back some other time. Uh, how about you, man? You ever go through a slump like that? Uh, sometimes it feels like my entire life is a slump. Um, <laughs> no, I totally have. And I've written about this in the past. Uh, sometimes I get what I kind of think of as uh, brewer's block. And I go through the exact same thing Leonard uh, described there where it's too hot. I mean, I live in Southern California. There are days when walking outside is just a bad idea. Um, other people may say it's too cold where they live, where they have actual winter. Uh, but yeah, I, I do it all the time. And I will tell you right now, the biggest thing that I think you can do to break out of it, if you get into one of these slumps, is to do something new. So get a new ingredient, get a new piece of gear, try a new style, try a new yeast, uh, invite somebody over. You know, get, a, get somebody to come over and say, hey, uh, come brew with me on Saturday. And that will motivate you because guess what? That person's going to come over on Saturday and go, dude, what do you mean we're not brewing? Uh, just do something different. And that I find will almost always help. Because yeah, I mean, there are times when you just get in a slump or a rut or anything else. And truthfully, you know, I know like with Denny and I, you know, there are times like when we're busy with the podcast or times that we're busy with writing projects or other projects. Yeah, it's hard to get out into the garage and do some brewing sometimes. Um, so, and I know that Leonard just put a message up today on Facebook because I was talking about a beer I'm brewing today. It's act actively brewing right now. And he actually went out and thanks to our interview with uh, Laughlin Family Malts uh, from the NHC, he went and picked up a whole sack of Irish ale. Oh, malt good on you, to Leonard. get him, yeah, to get him back into the into the brewing game, and that's exactly what it is. So, just try something new, and yeah, I mean, look, if it's if it's a a break, it's a break. I mean, look, people aren't out there playing golf all the time, so you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I've I've totally gone through it. I've totally done it. Another good tip I find particularly when you're talking about this inertia type stuff is to break things down into smaller chunks of discrete time. So that's part of the reason why I adopted doing pressure can starter work because I can do all my starter work ahead of time and I lose the ability to say, Oh, well I couldn't make a starter so I can't brew. Right. Cause now making a starter is popping a top on something, pouring into something else and pitching yeast. Uh, the other thing is, all right, get into the garage and do all your cleaning ahead of time. Or, sorry, into your brewery. Your brewery may not be in the garage. Mine is. Uh, another one. This is this is one that I have recently started to have to adopt because I found it was annoying me to no end. Get everything prepped the night before. So, like, for today's batch of beer, uh, I went out to the brewery last night, and I crushed all the malt, and I made sure that I had all the hops lined up, and I had everything set. Right? That's all I did. And that made it so much easier to come out there in the morning and fire everything up and get to brewing. I have I have so, to admit that's that's my normal uh, normal method. Also, I uh, the day before I brew, I uh, get all my water uh, measured and in in containers ready to go. I measure out all my water treatments and wrap them up in aluminum foil, ready to get dumped in when appropriate. Weigh out my hops, put them into plastic bags with the timing of the hop edition written on them. Get the grain crushed the day before, uh, maybe even farther ahead than that. 
Um, and that does that does make it more fun and easy when you get out there the next day to actually start brewing. Uh, but again, you know, you just got to wait for it, man. W- one thing that helps me sometimes is to imagine one of the favorite beers that I like to brew and what that beer tastes like and how great it would be to drink some. And sometimes that inspires me. So I would say, Leonard, you know, don't sweat it, buddy. Just deal with it as it comes. I guess that's the the Oregon philosophy, right? <laughs> yeah, it's definitely not the LA philosophy. <laughs> but no, seriously, I, I I swear, if you try and t- it's the engineer part of my brain, I think. Uh, if you try and picture the whole brew day as a thing, unless you're super psyched for it, it kind of feels like a drag sometimes. So totally break things down into discrete chunks. Uh, to Denny's point, remember we just had that experiment that showed at least one result where we had month-old grain that had been pre-crushed, beer still came out fine. And we had reports from people with longer spans. So you can do some prep work, get a, get ahead of yourself, and make it so that you, when it comes to brew day, it's fire up the kettles and go. Right, right. Okay, our next caller today is Jason Nelms. How are you, Jason? Doing good. Cool. How are you guys doing today? Uh, I'm, I'm good, considering the fact that technically I'm working. <laughs> <laughs> well... It's not a bad place to work. Yeah, you know, that's true, man. Working at home uh, and while you're talking about beer is not a bad thing. Uh, <laughs> no. Drew, say hi to Jason. Hello, Jason. How's it going, man? It's going. It's a beautiful day here in Pasadena, and I'm brewing. Now, I, I didn't catch, where, where are you at? I am uh, in basically a suburb of Nashville. It's called Mount Juliet, Tennessee. Well, there you go. All right. Uh, ooh, today's an important game, man. So far, the last time I checked, oh, are they really? Drew's from Florida. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I'm from Alabama yeah. actually, so I, I don't have a dog <laughs> right. in that. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> and and Denny, Denny's from Iowa and Oregon, and going. What are you guys talking about? <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's like I don't know, man. All right, so let, let's sure. get on to the question, shall we? That's enough football for. So all right, uh, Jason wrote in and he asked, uh, "What is your favorite method for getting fruit flavor into a beer?" without the added sweetness. Um, so for me, I, I tend to one, not mess around a lot with fruit flavors other than just by, sure. uh, fruit additions. And so I, I don't, I don't usually have to worry about the sweetness cause I'll just give it enough time to ferment away. Right. But that does come with the caveat that when you allow it to ferment away, the fruit flavor is obviously going to change because you no longer have that backing. <laughs> so now you're getting all the acid without anything else. If I'm really trying to go for fruit and like I want strawberries and strawberries, the classic one, because strawberry is the one that's impossible. To sure. That one, I will actually go to a, to an extract, but actually I'll tell you a dirty little secret here. My favorite way to add fruit flavor to something, you know, say like a raspberry, <clears throat> I go to a liquor store and I go buy the cheapest bottle of raspberry liqueur I can find. And, <laughs> and I add that and it does come with some sweetness packaged into it. But the alcohol is in there as well, and it tends to kind of cut away. Uh, I did that once to rescue a uh, – I did a cacao stout and left it on the cacao mix for a month, which is a bad idea. And Because by that point in time, all the tannins had leached out of the nibs, and so the beer was extraordinarily bitter and just not drinkable. And I, I dumped a 750 of Razzmatazz uh, liqueur into the keg, shook it up. <laughs> Razzmatazz. Razzmatazz. <laughs> oh, God. It was high class. And you yeah, know what? I bet, man. It worked like a charm. So, yeah, if I'm trying to get, like, big fruit flavor without, like, 
a right. lot of sweetness, but still, you know, I get that, you know, sort of obnoxious fruit thing. Then it's, uh, sure. I'll usually go with liqueur. How about you, Denny? Well, you know, um, I don't, I don't make a lot of fruit beers, but when I do, my theory is to use the fruit just like I do when I'm making a mushroom beer. And that is to freeze it first, uh, and then, uh, let it thaw out and dump it into a fermenter and rack the beer onto it. Um, I tend to use things like, you know, what I'm trying to remember here. I've used blackberries. I've used blueberries and, I have never found that I had a, a sweetness issue to deal with. And again, that might be because like Drew, I just make sure that it gets fermented out. Um, but that's, you know, that's, that's pretty much my method too. Uh, I haven't gone as far as razzmatazz yet though. <laughs> I, I, that sounds like the fruit version of ripple, right? It kind of, it's terrible stuff. Don't, don't come anywhere near it. It's like somebody made okay. Chambord, but decided to take all the class out of it. Um, so now, Jason, real quick, what are you looking to add uh, fruit flavor for and what sort of fruit? Um, I'm actually, uh, I just, I like adding fruit to beer mm-hmm. and I'm, I always check in to see what other people's methods are. Um, always interested if there's like a, is there a certain time, like if you're using like the frozen fruit, fruit method, um, do you do you put it in at a certain time? Do you wait until it's fully finished with its primary fermentation before you rack over onto it, or do you like maybe move over while there's some active fermentation still taking place in primary? I'm always interested in like, do you want some some extra yeast still kind of kicking about when you move it over so that it really gets a hold of the sugars and eats them and gets them out of there? Because I like fruit beer, but I don't I don't. I'd rather somebody go, hey, what's that flavor in there, instead of being able to drink and go, wow, that tastes like a blueberry soda. Yeah. Right, and I I think that has more to do with the amount of fruit that you use. Mm -hmm. Although I tend, I do wait until the end of primary fermentation, because I believe, right or wrong, that uh, if you add... You know, aromatic ingredients during primary fermentation, uh, you'll lose a lot of that aroma with the CO2 that's coming out of the beer. So I, I tend to wait and until the beer is fermented out and do it in secondary. And I guarantee you, no matter how clear that beer looks, there's going to be a lot of yeast left in there that will still take care of fermenting the sugars in that fruit. Cool. Yeah. And I'll add on to Denny's, uh, take. Um, I, I will generally rack over to another primary fermenter towards the end of, uh, either just after primary is done or really as it's edging into the finish. Uh, and I will dirty rack. Uh, I will, I will make sure I pick up just a little bit of yeast. Okay. I, I don't try and take up the whole yeast cake, but I, I will just take up a little bit. Uh, by the way, the other one, I was just thinking about this. The other really interesting technique that I've had in terms of getting good fruit flavor that gets into that realm of, huh, what is that is to use dried fruit. Okay. So I, I good idea. Yeah, and dry, dried fruit straight into secondary uh, actually works like a charm. Uh, yeah. And I find like the one that the one that works the best for that is one of those ones that is impossible to ever capture correctly, which is apricot. Apricot. I've done that with uh, a. Um, I've done that with a uh, uh, blonde ale that I put into an oat whiskey barrel um, with a bunch of dried apricots, and that did turn out pretty well. Um, mm-hmm. it, it. I felt like the. 
the apricots kind of got hidden because the, the oak whiskey really kind of stole yeah. the show. There. But that that's a really interesting idea for a flavor combination. I can see how if you could get the balance, that could work really well. Well, I mean, it's Southern Comfort. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's true. Southern, <laughs> Southern Comfort. <laughs> Southern comfort is peaches and uh, peaches and apricots and whiskey. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, uh, and I will stress to the listeners who are uh, who are on the other end of this podcast, uh, make sure if you're going to do dried fruit that you that you really make an effort to get unsulfured. Yeah, really. Dried fruit. Yeah, that's really hard to find too. It looks terrible, and it seems like you can find it a lot for peaches and apricots in particular. Mm-hmm. But it looks terrible. But the flavor is going to be better, and you're not dealing with sulfur, even though you can blow that out. So, uh, I but that's my preference. All right, moving on to the other parts of the question. Uh, Denny, uh, Jason's asking, have you changed your mind about tinctures? Since the writing of the you know, this is, this is a good question, Jason, because I, I have to admit that Drew has calmed a lot of my qualms about a lot of things that I used to be totally opposed to <laughs> because he does it and it seems to work. I'm still not going to taste his damn fluffernutter beer, no matter what. But, um, you know, tinctures, yeah, I I mean, I have had his beers that have used tinctures. I have seen his shelves in the garage lined with jars of tinctures ready to go and thought, oh, that's a really cool idea. I have not gone as far as to do it for myself because my own results yeah. have, have not been good in the past. So I have just kind of resigned myself to the fact that I'm not going to be able to do it right, but I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to try and talk other people out of doing it like I used to do. So. <laughs> okay. That's fair enough. Yeah. Good, good, a good way to actually make that into the least sound body, uh, sound bitey way of saying, Hey, you know what? Drew's right. You know, <laughs> I, I I try to avoid saying that, but here it is, Drew. You can you can like record this. You can like put it on your phone for a ringtone. Drew was right. Cut off. <laughs> there you go. Mark that one in the. You ever use whip siphon to make your uh, tinctures? I can't remember if I read that in, in your book or if I read it in another book. I, I saw someone uses the whip siphon. I do that a good bit and have mixed results depending on what it is I'm using. But um, but uh, I was wondering if yeah. you ever did that I, method. Yeah, I, I I totally do, and I've used it in our talks to demonstrate it to people because uh, I love it. I think it's uh, fantastic, uh, and I'm going to put a video of it online so that people can see it. Yeah, but, yeah. If you if it's in the book, and uh, yeah, it's basically get a whipping siphon, or if you don't have a whipping siphon and don't feel like spending the sixty seventy bucks on one, uh, you can do this with a two liter bottle and a carbonator cap and some yeah. vodka. Basically, four ounces of vodka, your spice or whatever it is that you're trying to do in there get it under a lot of pressure let it sit for a minute or two and then crack it all at once and watch the pressure just flood out and all the stuff come into the vodka so yeah i i do that all the time i actually use it as a party trick to make uh flavored martinis for people yeah Uh, in addition to other things it's awesome it's totally good and thanks for reminding me that i need to make a video of it drew Drew has a wide variety of uh types of alcohol that he enjoys so (laughs) pretty much any um, all right yeah hey, oh, yeah. look if it tastes good i'm there all right so the uh, last part of your question that you asked was if you had to make low alcohol uh beers uh to which i will stop and say had i love making low alcohol beers uh what would you try to do and recreate these three styles while keeping the alcohol below three percent uh yes i know they would not technically fall into the style by definition but i am looking at techniques to get as close as possible and the three styles you listed were IPA, saison, and barrel aged anything. So I'll I'll tackle at least on the saison angle. 
Uh, there is absolutely nothing wrong with the Saison down below 3%, and my table Saison that, uh, that I write about uh, comes into play. I will tell you right now, my primary trick for all of this is figure out a way to keep bodies. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's, that's the, the biggest... Yeah, that's just what I was going to say, too. Yeah. So it's the, the biggest problem that any of these styles have, uh, or any of the session beers have, is the fact that you go and you get something that's 3%, and it tastes like you're drinking water, uh, but water with a funny flavor. Uh, and so for me, my and my big dirty secret is not even that much of a secret because I talk about it all the time. Uh, I use oats. <laughs> I use a lot of oats because I find that oats give a wonderful richness and roundness to the mouthfeel of the beer without right. being overly sweet and gummy. Okay. So if I was making, when I do my table saisons, it's got a, hel- uh, a hefty dose of oats in there. Uh, barrel aged, same sort of thing. Some sort of body giving adjunct would actually give you uh, some some room to stand up against the oak tannins. Okay. Uh, IPA, the hardest trick I think about the IPA, and the reason why I object to a lot of the session IPAs that are out there right now, is not only do they miss out on the body, right. but they still try for some reason to think, oh, it's an IPA, so therefore I have to have 60 to 80 IBUs. Yeah. And when you're up against that, that small thing, it's terrible. Yeah, like... Uh- I've got one that I've done. I think I've gotten kind of where I want, and Annie Johnson really helped me on this. She got me started on it, um, and, and that is uh, basically to try to keep your IBUs somewhere close to equal to your um, like your starting gravity. So if you've got like a ten thirty starting gravity, then shoot for thirty IBUs, and you're, you'll end up with a decent balance. And then try to build your aroma and everything from the dry hopping and. And um, and that one's actually turned out. I've actually it's on the Pico Brew Library. It's, uh, I think it's called Low Low Grav or is it, what's it Low ABV IPA Version One is the name of it. If, uh, if anybody wants to try it out, right? Yeah, I, I probably will. Um, I. Uh I think that that's really sound advice, which is no surprise coming from Annie. Um, but, um, you know, I, when I'm making an IPU, I generally think in terms of of the gravity unit to bittering unit ratio, you know, and I try and keep it at at least at one. So I think doing that, even when you're making a, uh, a lower gravity beer, uh, could work really well because you're still kind of maintaining that, that same stylistic, definition of your ipa there yeah yeah and and for the for the ipa also if you don't want to use oats in there although hey look if you use oats you're in the newfangled world of new england IPA. Oh, juicy baby uh, juicy I, 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 yeah that's what's fermenting right now now see there you go <laughs> but i would also say if for the ipa if you don't want to do oats uh then i would go for uh looking actually really doing like an all munich ipa uh in, in the session style that's interesting this one is a uh like Seventy percent Munich, twenty percent oat, and ten percent um, like C eighty. I think is what I've got in there with it. So yeah, that's, uh, that, that's kind of what I'm doing with this one. <laughs> yeah, man. That yeah, see, you're reading my mind. That that's just right there with with exactly what we were talking about. So uh, awesome. Yeah, that, that that validates what I was trying to do. So awesome, man. I'm glad that uh, I'm 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 glad that that seems to be on track. So I'm kind of excited for it. It's going through its first round of dry hopping right now. I'm ready to pull it out and start drinking it. Oh, cool, man! <laughs> and, and you made you made this in a zymatic. Is that what I gathered? Yeah, I did. Yeah. 
Okay, well, I'm I'm definitely going to be checking out the recipe then because uh, I need to I need to break out the zymatic and brew something with it, uh, and that sounds like awesome. a good thing to do. So, well, next- this one is uh, I'll publish this one. This is a new one. It's called uh, Wilhelm Shave and IPA is the name of it. Wow. Um, <laughs> so, okay, well, I, I guarantee you, man, my next zymatic brew is going to be one of your low alcohol IPAs because I would love to have something like that around. Awesome, man. I'll uh, I'll. Uh, send it over to you on uh, Facebook or something. I'll give you the names of the two that I've got out there. Excellent. That'd be great. So anything else we can do for you while we got you? No, man, you guys are awesome. Uh, just, I, I love, uh, I love all y'all's, your books and, uh, just a uh, big fan of the show and everything. So yeah, uh, really appreciate you guys calling and answering my questions for me. Hey man, we appreciate you taking the time to uh, sit here and bull with us. Oh yeah. Always. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Jason. Thanks a bunch, man. Have a great rest of your day. Yeah, man. You guys too. Have a great one. All right. Thanks a bunch. All right. Bye. Thank you. Bye. So our next question comes from Frank McKinney, who emailed us to ask about kettle souring. Drew, could you please explain in detail your method of kettle souring? I know you made that extract version from your last brew day with a Falcon day and hearing you talk about how delicious it came out piqued my interest. I've recently fell in love with sour beers and would love to hear more about this kettle souring process, included, including an, a simple all-grain recipe. Thanks, guys. Love the podcast. Keep up the good work. Frank. All right. Well, Frank, I will tell you right now, uh, in comparison to a lot of people out there, I am a piker when it comes to kettle souring. This is a technique that I'm really starting to just get into and explore more, but I will give you the, the rock-solid basis of it, all right? Because Ultimately, when you come down to it, it is fairly straightforward. Now, you already heard my extract version. Uh, if you didn't, go back to listen to the interviews with uh, Brew of the Falcon Day. And I think there was an episode, two, three episodes back, where we actually talked about the beer itself. So uh, go, and look, go and look for that if you want the extract brew details. They'll also be on the website shortly. For all grain, here's the thing about kettle souring. Uh, your all grain day is really just broken into two. So, what I like to do if I was if I'm going to do a all grain kettle sour mash, do all my usual work. Uh, depending upon how you want to be uh, in terms of accuracy, in terms of providing additional food sources for your creatures, you can try doing a turbid mash uh, or adding flour. Uh, some people will do that. Uh, generally, I wouldn't stress it too much, uh, at least not when you're starting off. Just do a normal mash: pilsner, some wheat, maybe some oats. Call it a day. Get it into your kettle. Now, if you want to be in pure control over what's in the kettle. Bring that kettle up to a boil or a brief simmer, you know, say 10 minutes. So you kill off all the lactobacillus and other things that are coming in from the grain. Put the uh, Turn the burner off. Either uh, chill the beer down or let the beer drift down naturally to, say, around 120. At that, which point in time, go ahead and add your bugs. Now, what sort of bugs you're adding depends upon what you want. There are some people who will do lactobacillus grain starters, like literally take a small portion of grain, a small portion of hot water, toss the grain in there, let that sour overnight, because remember, barley is full of lactobacillus and it will it will tackle it. Uh, if the starter smells right, they'll pitch that into the kettle. Other people will do things with uh, yogurt, with live active cultures. Uh, you'll see people talk about good belly, or either, even just some of the probiotic capsules that you can find in the drugstore because these things are filled with live cultures of various lactobacilluses and other creatures and pitch those into the still warm wort. Now, the important part is 
it needs to be warm wort or you want it to be warm wort because lactobacillus prefers heat. It also prefers deoxygenated wort. So freshly boiled is good because that removes a lot of entrained oxygen uh, in the wort. And then if you keep it warm, that allows the lactobacillus to stay very, very active and crowd out other things. Uh, so what I will do is I will actually take my kettle. I will wrap it with some uh, camping bags. And here's the other piece of the trick. If you've ever done the whole thing where you've left a mash in the mash tun overnight, not that I've ever done that. Not at all. Hi. Yeah, right. Never. Huh? If you come back to it the next day and you open the lid or two days later, or God forbid, even longer. Not that I've ever done that. Uh, it smells like death. It smells like you've stumbled upon a corpse factory. And a good portion of the reason for that is lactobacillus and oxygen together tend to make those very corpsey type smells. They're terrible. So what I will also do after I pitch the lactobacillus and other probiotic cultures, other fun critters, uh, in the case of the extract beer, I just use some bug country. I will flood the tank, the kettle with CO2. Now, unlike our previous discussion about kegging, where I talked, eh, okay, where I ranted about making sure to fully purge the, the system by flooding uh, or pushing out liquid and filling up the whole area with CO2, it's not really practical with your tank. And in that particular case, yes, I will do the whole, you know, sort of multiple bursts of high pressures of CO2. Uh, and really what you're trying to do is generate a CO2 blanket on top of the wart to keep oxygen away from your critters and generating very, very bad smells. Uh, then you let that go. Co uh, cover the tank up, uh, hold the kettle as warm as you can for a long period of time. Again, I'm fortunate. I live in Southern California. My garage is a broiler. Uh, and I will let that go for two, three, four days. And at the end of it, if you want to be really persnickety and precise, you pull a sample, you taste it, you see whether or not it's where you want it to be. So if it is, you take it, you throw it on the burner, you bring it up to a boil. And again, brief boil. In my case, when I do it, I tend to add like a little bit of hops because once the lactobacillus is done, I really want to make sure that I have the hop in there to avoid uh, any further lactobacillus uh, activity. Let it boil for 15 minutes so that I'm pretty certain I've killed off most of the critters in there. Chill it just like I would any other beer straight into the fermenter and pitch with a regular ale yeast. Let it go for two weeks. And when you come out the other side, you probably have a pretty decent kettle sour. And there's going to be a lot of variables and process to play around with in order to really drive it home. But I think the big key ones are a brief simmer to kill off the lactobacillus at the beginning. Let it chill down. Flood the, uh, flood the kettle with CO2. Pitch whatever cultures it is that you want to play with uh, at 120F. Hold that warm for as long as you can and until you get the taste that you want. Bring to a boil. A little bit of hops, chill, pitch your yeast, go. There you go. Kettle sour in 10 minutes. Wow. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of work, man. But uh, I know that you make some great beers that way. I have to admit that I don't think I have ever made a sour beer that I recall. Generally because I don't like to have five gallons of it around. It would just take me too long to drink it. Uh, one other little note that I will put in is that... Uh, 
living here in Eugene, where we have uh, the Springfield Creamery, started by the Kesey family. They make an amazing uh, yogurt called Nancy's Yogurt with lots of lactobacillus in it, and that is the preferred method of souring here in Hippie Town. Well, and that's one of the things I think is the most amazing part about the whole, not not just kettle souring, but also the other activities that you'll particularly see on uh, Milk the Funk, which we talked about before. Right. Uh, yep. The fact that brewers are out there and they're seizing hold of these uh, cultures that you would never have thought, at least when I started, that, oh, hey, I can use that to make beer. Uh, and they're cheaper than going out and, say, buying pure pitch cultures of lactobacillus and Britannomyces from, you know, the brewing supply places. Yeah, right. Exactly. Okay, next question comes from Steve Rutch. Steve, I hope I pronounced your last name correctly. It's pretty straightforward. Steve wants to know, what is the one beer you wish you had never brewed? (laughs) And I've been sitting here trying to think about this. Uh, I've come up with two. Uh, One of them... uh, Almost was okay because it was such a funny conclusion. One of them was a uh, Dortmunder export that I made with uh, the S23 dry lager yeast. I know some people have had good experiences with that yeast, but I am not one of them. Uh, This beer turned out so weirdly fruity, I would say disgustingly fruity, that I thought, I need some help figuring out what's going on here. So I sent some to uh, John Palmer. Uh, this was, oh, God, has to be a good 15 years ago or more. John was kind enough to take his life in his hands and try the beer and sent me an email back saying that it tasted to him a lot like Bartles and James Passion Fruit Wine Cooler, which I thought was a great description. And he followed it up by saying, but hey, you live in a college town, so you'll probably be able to find some girls to drink it. Well, uh, I didn't do that. It, uh, it went onto the lawn. Uh, I, I lagered that beer for a year. I tried dry hopping it heavily with Cascades to cover up the, uh, the disgusting mango, peachy, passion fruitiness of it. Uh, nothing ever worked. It became obvious after a year that no one was ever going to want to drink that beer and it got dumped out. So that would be one, except for the story about Palmer. See, Uh, one, I can see Palmer saying that. And two, just think if you had held on to it now, people would be describing that beer as juicy. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. The other one was a beer that came to me in a dream. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, no, man. I should I should have known right there, huh? Uh, it was a, it was a very weird dream, and uh, the part of it that uh, that concerns the beer. I was in some sort of old west town, looked like a like a movie set from uh, High Noon or something like that. I was walking down, you know, the the wooden walk with the hitching rail beside it, and uh, I looked over and. To my left, there was a poster hanging on the wall about the uh, local saloon having a nugget porter. Uh, some, there was something more to the name, but something something like that. So I decided that I would try one of those. So I, I made a porter with a whole lot of nugget hops in it. I don't know if it was the only hop. It might have been. And I was so enthusiastic that I even planted a bunch of nugget uh, hop rhizomes. Well, the beer just 
absolutely sucked. It was terrible. It was not not worth drinking. There was something just too earthy and bizarre about it, uh, almost fuggleish uh, about it. So uh, so that beer got dumped, and I spent the next five years trying to kill off the nugget hops because, believe me, once you plant hops and you don't want them anymore, they're a bitch to get rid of. So how about you? What's yours that you wish you'd never brewed? Well, I'm just – first, got to go back and stop and think about, like, taking advice from a dream for your beer. Um, yeah, well <laughs> – <laughs> I, I know, like I said, I should have known better. Well, and also, I don't believe that you actually brewed this beer unless you can tell me which batch number it is from your logs. So, Well, you know what? I will go back and look it up, and next episode, I will have that answer for you. All right, there you go. If, if, Denny, if Denny doesn't have the answer, he's lying about his logbook, and we can no longer trust that he's actually on batch 500 and something. <laughs> You know what? I'll actually I'll actually take a picture of all my logbooks lined up, and we can put that on the website. There you too. go. All right. Uh, for me, it's fairly straightforward. The second I saw this question, there was one beer that jumped instantly to mind, and that was my attempt, oddly enough, at a porter, uh, but it, at a historical porter. This one did not come to me in a dream. There was no old west odor visions here. <laughs> um, no, this was reading about. Uh, historical porter from the time, like, oh, you know, when three threads and all that sort of stuff that's since been debunked uh, was very popular. And they said, oh, well, you know, uh, historical porters during that period of time were a third pale malt, a third brown malt, and a third amber malt. And I went to my homebrew store and I said, I have pale malt, I have amber malt, and I have brown malt. Awesome. Let's do this. And so I made that beer. That beer was terrible. And it was <laughs> terrible because... What I'd never, what I hadn't realized, because I'm a dummy, was modern brown malt, like what you find from Thomas Fawcett's, is radically different in theory from what brown malt would have been back in the day. Uh, nowadays, brown malt is a sort of an accent malt. It's a toasted malt. It has very strong uh, biscuity, bready, uh, burnt flavors to it. Uh, is not the sort of thing that should be used anywhere near the quantity of a third of your crust. And that beer was <laughs> astringent burnt terrible terrible and just like you i refuse to give up on it like no no this beer will this beer will be something and i know that historical porter had a lot of britannomyces in it right and so they aged them for a good long period of time and that's that's how they were made because the okay it's stale porter stale porter that's what i'm going to go for that's going to smooth out all the flavors so i pitched a bunch of brett into the beer and i waited and i waited I lost the keg in my closet, and I waited. I think I finally tasted it again about two and a half years after I brewed it and pitched the, the bread into it, and it was still terrible. Absolutely terrible. <laughs> so terrible that I, I didn't even use it to make beans. I just dumped it straight away. So that is the beer that uh, I regret brewing. Uh, I don't regret the lesson I learned from it. I do know that it gave me a lifelong aversion to brown malt. And so if you ever see a recipe from me that has brown malt in it, you can assure that is a coded message uh, that I am being held hostage. <laughs> yeah, uh, I got to tell you, my uh, bourbon vanilla porter has some brown malt in it, but that is about the only thing that I use it in. But I, I think you had a good point, though, about learning from your mistakes. Uh, you know, 
Uh, I hate to say it, uh, it's an old cliche, but I think that we really do learn more from our mistakes than our successes. It it may not be as pleasant, but, uh, you know, it is a learning experience. Indeed. So uh, the next question comes from Alex Rystrom, who wants to know, did you guys keep your New Year's resolutions? And before we get to that, Alex also has a helpful tip. I always wrap a towel around the top of my immersion chiller because even if I check ahead of time, it will still inevitably leak. The towel will keep that out of the wort and give you a chance to pull it out and fix it before you ruin your beer. Alex, buddy, I know that. Uh, my homemade chiller has more than once uh, blown a hose as I was chilling. So that's a that's a really good tip. Uh, the other good tip is to keep your... Uh, ends of the chiller long enough so that they go over the edge of your kettle so you don't have to worry about it. Uh, my best tip is to go get yourself a Hydra chiller like Drew and I did, and then it'll be quality stuff and you won't have to worry about it. Okay, back to the New Year's Eve resolutions. I, I remember a few. I, I, I have them. I, said, I have them. Do you? I, I okay. have them listed. All right. Okay. Let's see. What? What? <laughs> well, hold on. of course, now I've lost them. All right. So here are the New, Year, New Year's resolutions for Dene. Uh, get my life organized so I can brew more. Uh, no. Mm-hmm. Try more new ingredients. Red X, for example. Yes, but I haven't made it to Red X yet. What new ingredients have you played with? Uh, the uh, the D240 candy syrup, some interesting hop varieties, and I've been playing with a whole bunch of new equipment, too. And the Laughlin uh, Irish Ale Malt. Oh, yeah, and the Laughlin Malt, too, right, yeah. Right. Uh, try not to get grossed out by Drew's beers. Yeah, I'm doing better at that, actually. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I've actually even complimented you on a couple and said maybe I could drink that. Yeah, I think the last one you objected to was the Fluffernutter one which I still don't get. Yeah, but, well, it's because I've never been a a fan of, like, you know, peanut butter and chocolate and those kinds of flavors together. So, okay. All right, and then uh, get my chicken coop built. Oh, yeah, man. Not only is the chicken coop built and beautiful, but we collected our first two eggs yesterday. And they came from our our Americanas, which are kind of like a version of the Aracana chicken. And they lay blue-green eggs, and they are just gorgeous. So far, the most expensive eggs you've ever had in your life, right? Yeah, well, yeah, I figure that for the next five years, my eggs are going to cost me close to 40 bucks a piece. There you go. All right, and then the last one that I have recorded down here is practice uke and other instruments. Uh, I've been a little bit better at that, but I haven't gotten to it as much as I need to. Uh, uh, Especially, I need to get on my uke playing. If I'm going to do it in public, I just can't inflict that kind of stuff on people anymore. Yeah, and yet you're still going to do it. All right, and then on my side, uh, the ones I have recorded down uh, is uh, more brewing because I have an obnoxious amount of malt in the in the garage and I have been doing more uh, more brewing more session beers and I feel like I've been doing more session beers uh, uh, particularly with my table saisons and uh, right now I've got a, I've got a hybrid maybe session beer going on in the garage right now the double Irish but we'll talk more about that on another show uh, so and we also uh, promoted the hell out of uh, session beers earlier this year when uh, when we were doing Lou Bryson's Session Beer Day. So totally all about the Session Beer. People should totally be about it, too. Promote the heck out of tasty things that aren't so shocking. I think I've done a spectacular job of that this year. Yeah, you've been trying. Yeah, I'll give you that. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
uh, get back to better note taking. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, that ain't gonna happen, huh? Yeah, uh, not one of these days. Uh, stop letting kegs stack up and get things better organized. Uh, I'm halfway there. I've got another uh, couple months to close that one out, but uh, at least I'm down to. I think I've got six kegs left to sanitize. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not bad. Yeah, and then uh, the sixth and final one was the uh, was the one where I had the small breakdown and talked to everybody that I needed to be more sincere. I have no clue if I've been more sincere. Uh, I've tried. I'm still a raging smartass, but I've tried to be more sincere. Uh, but but you're a sincere smartass. Yeah. So that's where I'm at on my Brewers resolutions. I, I I hope that I can close these up, but I think not too bad. Yeah, that's what I would say too, man. I, I came closer than I usually do. I guess it's the public scrutiny, huh? Yeah, well, it, that's the whole reason to do it, right? Hey, you guys said you were going to do X. You suck. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, so the last question in the yep. philosophy section goes to you. All right, and this one is from a friend of the podcast and uh, uh, the person who always comes up with the great questions, uh, Len. Uh, Len Noella uh, out of uh, good old Los Angeles, California. She says, hi, Denny and Drew. Question. Hi, Len. Yep. Question. Do refractometers work? It is the opinion of many amazing homebrewers in my club that a hydrometer is much more accurate than a refractometer. I've been using a refractometer for some time now, before and after adding the yeast, with good results. For the post-yeast stage, I simply do the conversion in the Beersmith software to get my numbers. I've also compared my results with those of a hydrometer and found them to be the same. I really like the fact that I can just use a few drops on my refractometer to assess my gravity rather than filling a hydrometer packaging tube. Nevertheless, all these amazing brewers can't be wrong. Can they? Yes, they can. Uh, and they can be for you, They can, and they can be right for themselves. It's the important part. Uh, I am a dedicated refractometer user. I know Denny is not, if I remember correctly. That's correct. Um, I am in the same boat as you, Lynn. I like having a refractometer. I like having just a few samples. I don't like wasting a ton of beer, particularly since I'm doing more brewing now at the smaller batch stage. A hydrometer tube becomes a much pre more precious volume of the wort. So I use my refractometer both uh, pre and post fermentation. I do the same adjustments. And I have found for my particular needs that the refractometer is accurate enough in a post fermentation state. Now, I've done the same sort of checks that you've done, and I've checked them against hydrometers. And the most difference I've ever seen is like two, three points. Now, for people who are numbers driven, two or three points is going to seem wildly off and horrible. But to me, if I'm ra I'm raising my hand here, yeah, I know. But to me, if I'm not trying to do something with my numbers, like say nail the ability to uh, naturally carbonate with the residual gravity in the keg, I don't care that I'm two to three points off as long as the beer itself tastes right. So. I can use a refractometer, pour myself a small sample, and you know, see if I'm in the ballpark. If the beer tastes right, then I'm satisfied. And also, generally, I don't stress a lot about fermentation times unless I need to. And so, for me, with the good yeast health that I'm pursuing and everything else, I know my beer is going to be done in 10 days. So, I'm rarely ever concerned about it unless it's something massive. 
And that point in time, yeah, I will definitely double chuck. But yeah, for me, I'm fine with the refractometer. I have two. I have yield a handheld uh, uh, analog unit that you stare through and try and find the thin blue line. And I have a digital refractometer, which, you know, a little sample on a little optical eyeglass, and it comes back with a nice digital number. Uh, I like wow. them both. They're awesome. And I love to use cool. them. And I know Denny doesn't. Well, you know, and, and maybe I just uh, got a couple bad refractometers, but I have two of them, and they never agree with my hydrometer. And you're right. It is, it is like within two or three points, and I have tried to tell myself, okay, close enough. Just don't worry about it. And I'm, I'm afraid I'm just too OCD to be able to do that. So I, I stick with my, uh, my hydrometer. Uh, I had thought about buying an, yet another refractometer to see if it matched up better. But, you know, I, I've got two that I'm not using. I don't see any reason to have a third one that I won't use. I'm, uh, I'm just going to say, you're you know, the most anal retentive hippie I've ever met. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, somebody's got to wave that flag. So, uh, you know, I've come up with a, a method to quickly cool a sample of boiling wort so that I can uh, I can get a hydrometer reading with it. I put eight ounces into a metal cocktail shaker. I uh, put the lid on it, put that into a bowl of ice water and swirl the shaker around. And in less than 60 seconds, I can go from boiling to 65 degrees and get a good reading. When it comes to final gravity... Um, I just don't care a whole lot about whether or not I'm pulling beer. You know, it's like I actually pull more. I fill a 20 ounce bottle to about the 16 ounce level with the beer. I use a little bit of that for my hydrometer reading, pour it back into the bottle, put a carbonator cap on the bottle, hit it with about 30 PSI. It goes in the freezer for 45 minutes and then I have a cold carbed sample of uh, my finished beer ready to go. Uh, so, you know, it's like I, I'm not concerned about trying to get as little as I can because I'm going to drink it anyway. I'm not pouring that sample out. So, but to answer your question, your basic question, Lynn, was do refractometers work? Obviously, they do. They work for you. They work for Drew. Uh, I would say that both the refractometer and the hydrometer are good pieces of equipment used the right way. It's a, a preference choice. Use what works for you. Indeed. And that's really the story of everything about brewing, right? There are 50 ways to do anything to make beer, and you just got to find the process that works for you and works for your brain. Okay, so finally, we've gone through that whole big stack of questions, and I hope that maybe you guys have uh, found some useful information in there, and we haven't actually led anybody astray. Uh, yeah, we'll be doing uh, another one of these in a few more months, so stand by, keep sending in those questions. Uh, we do at least a few Q&A every episode on the show, so keep sending those questions into questions at experimentalbrew.com. There you go, and hey, don't forget, if you like this segment, or you like any of the other segments, or you have any feedback, uh, let us know at podcast at experimentalbrew.com as well. We are depending upon you to tell us what we're doing that's right and what we're doing that's wrong. So, questions at experimentalbrew.com. Just tell tell us gently, please. Yeah, D Denny's heart can't take the harsh criticism. 
he's a gentle soul so drew how about a quick recap of today's show oh boy so let's see we dug into some uh feedback from our questions and from uh experiments that we've done in the past which was really awesome always great to know that people are listening and that people have opinions uh we talked a little bit about the barley crop report something that you don't always hear every day but go find terry speed on facebook and enjoy what she's putting out there and then we talked to joe and we talked about the mystical magical possible panacea for all your oxidation problems brutan b and the experiment that we're going to do with it uh lastly we well you just heard it we just tackled a whole raft (laughs) of questions so what more can we say except for keep asking away we'll keep recording and hopefully we'll keep coming up with some useful information for you guys yep so uh thanks a bunch everybody for listening to our experimental brewing podcast you can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website which is experimentalbrew.com don't forget to follow us on twitter where we're at experimental brew we're on facebook uh we're just like all over the place i'm on a bunch of different beer forums out there you can find drew on the reddit homebrewing forum If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, you can email me at denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's drew at experimentalbrew.com. So until next time, always remember to brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.